morning. This is probably like my second grade class. So I, I'm running between things. Morning, Joe. How are you? It's good to hear so much activity on a Friday morning. You're alert and alive and ready for the training. Um, I'm really glad to uh, have you all here today and have John Lyons here. I've been talking about this since uh, I guess I came on board about how we need to implement um, data-driven decision-making and um, gathering data to help tell the story of what we do, how well we do it, and how we know people are better off. So this is a significant step forward in that direction. Today's training is the um, measure we're going to use for working with adults, and I'll uh, take you to the training day. Um, it's important, I know some people are both working with adults and children, uh, so if you sit through today's training and you get certified in this measure, uh, I suspect you'll be able to, and John will talk more about this, uh, take the online test for the child measure without coming to the child training. So, of course, John's terrific, so if you want two doses of him, you can feel free to come to both trainings. Um, but we did, we, we structured two trainings, not just for Kansansa, but we have about 200 people across the department we want to train, and we didn't want to have such a large group. So um, either way, two trainings is what we were hoping for. Um, but uh, you can, uh, after today, and John will take you through the certification process uh, and how you'll do that, if you do, if you get certified in the ANSA and you want to try your hand at the CANS without coming to the training in February, that's fine. You can do that. I might recommend you try, and if it's not successful and you need some uh, thoughts on or training on the CANS, that you could then come to the CANS training, which is February 1st, I believe. Right? So you'll have some time to sort of see. But uh, if you think you only need the one training day, that's fine. We'll have two for you just in case, uh, and also to catch the other folks that maybe didn't make it today. Um, some housekeeping things. We have a lunch break, 12 to 1, right? Um, we didn't, we weren't able to find money in our budget for catering today, uh, unfortunately, or we would have had some goodies for you, but we weren't able to do that. Uh, but there's places to get lunch um, around here, so hopefully you'll you'll find time to do that. Uh, and then we'll end today by 4 o'clock, I think. So um, hopefully you'll find this uh, interesting, and John will talk a lot about the measure and um, the nature of it as a community metric tool, which you've heard me talk a lot about in terms of how we get data from using this tool, not just at the very person-to-person -person level about how we know we're working well with clients, but also at the program level and the agency level, and then being able to talk with folks um, like our funders and folks at the county about how well we're doing. So, I'm excited we're having the training today. Um, I'll turn it over to John and uh, we'll get started, right? Thank you. Very good. <coughs> so, uh, it's a real pleasure for me to be here. I live in uh, Ottawa, in Ottawa, Canada. So, uh, which is, uh, for those of you who don't know, if you get in a car and you drive straight north about the 10 hours later, you'll be in Ottawa. So, uh, so I'm happy to be here because it's a heck of a lot warmer here than it is there. So. Uh, it's always it's also nice for me to come to uh, Virginia because Virginia is one of the uh, uh, cradles of this particular uh, approach, and uh, folks have used it for quite a while in the in the CSA. So, but I'm thinking about you. I mean, let's see if I understand your situation. So you're sitting in a windowless room for an entire day, 
a little bit closer to your colleagues than you might normally choose to sit. Learning how to do paperwork. Um, so, uh, you know, you must be thrilled. Right? So where do I get off? I mean, how can I stand up here and ask you for a day of your valuable time to learn how to do paperwork? Maybe this is something different than that. Maybe it's my responsibility as a trainer to open your minds to the possibility that this is something different from this. Than that. But you have choices in life. The choices you make define you. The choices you make as a person define you as a person. The choices you make professionally define you as a professional. You have choices when it comes to the answer. You have at least three choices. You can do it in a form. A form is something you fill out because somebody told you to fill it out. I guarantee you the answer always starts as a form. If it stays as a form, it wastes your time. You've got plenty of forms, right? You don't really need any more forms. Now we know, we know here your second choice, we know it can be a tool. A tool is something that helps you work smarter rather than harder. A tool is something that helps you in your work. We know that the answer is going to be a tool because quite literally tens of thousands of people have figured out how to use this approach as a tool. So that's a legitimate choice. And three, it's actually a framework. The answer is one of the only theoretically driven approaches to common assessment of outcomes management that exists. So it actually is designed to be the work. So what is the work? And we go through it, and as you look at the answer, take a look at the items and ask the following question. Is there anything on this that I don't actually need to know if I'm doing my job? Because it's designed to be exactly the same thing as your job. Not designed to be different. And we have a long history of paperwork being somewhat irrelevant to the work itself. This is designed to be the same thing as the work. It's designed to be a conceptual framework. So that's where I would like to start. So the, the organization of this training is where I start on the big picture issues. Why is it this, this, this is something I think you might choose to learn how to do well. Then we're going to walk through the, uh, character, the uh, items of the answer. And then uh, somewhere in there there's one. Uh, and then we're going to do a practice vignette. So we'll get together in small groups of two, three, four people. And we'll describe Jake. We'll come back together. The whole group will talk through We'll talk a little bit about how you can translate this into a uh, treatment plan. So you see how it's scored, if that's the right word, at the individual level. And then we'll take a test. You know, there's two kinds of, two kinds of training. There are school trainings and there are prison trainings, right? So a prison training, you just have to put in your time to get off base on good behavior. This is not a prison training. This is a school training. You have to demonstrate that you learned something. So there is a test. So the concept is that, uh, you know, to be certified, you have to score a .70 or above on an interclass correlation coefficient on the test and yet, whatever the heck that means. The sad reality is you sort of understand what that means by the into today, whether you don't want to or not, right? But the only concept of the test is this is a common language. And really the issue in our field is we've lost trust. We've lost trust. And if you want to re-establish trust, you have to have trust in each other that you're all talking the same language. So the reason you have a test is to make sure we reassure each other that when we're all talking this language, we're all able to talk the same language. That's why you have the test. And that's the only reason you have the test. Okay, so that's the organization. So what is this? Why is it that I think 
this might be something you would like to invest in for your time and effort. All right, so it's an outcomes management tool. What does that mean? An outcomes is a bit of a buzzword. A lot of people are talking about it. What does it really mean? So the way I think about it, 2009 was the first year that over a million people were described with this approach around the world. So it's pretty widely used. This year it'll be about 1.5 million times different people are described with this approach. So it's widely used. Um, there's, I think uh, this year it's going to be up to 33 states with statewide implementations. There's implementations actually on every, uh, every continent except Antarctica. So I'm not really optimistic about Antarctic implementation. I'm not even keen on Antarctic Anyway, so there's a lot of use. So I've had the privilege of working with a lot of people in a whole lot of different places. And I've been struck by three vivid experiences. There are a lot of really good people who work in the human services sector. There's a lot of really good people. It's the work of angels. Right? It's hard work. You don't get paid very much. You sometimes experience vicarious trauma just from listening to the stories of what the people you serve go through. There are really good people. The human capital in the adult public health system is amazing. A lot of good people. Number two, we know a lot. We know a lot about how to address behavioral challenges. Emotional challenges, developmental challenges, educational challenges, vocational challenges, housing challenges. We know a lot. And number three, despite the fact that we've got a lot of really good people who care, who know a lot about what should be happening in our system, it's really not the case that we've been able to create systems that consistently work on behalf of the people we serve. My guess is you don't have to think back very far in your job before you identify a circumstance where something happened to somebody you're working with. It's not like it shouldn't happen. So why is that? Why is it despite the best efforts of really good people who care and know a lot, why is it so difficult for us to create systems that are effective? I think there's three fundamental challenges. Three fundamental challenges that have actually prevented us from realizing the incredible potential of our human capital. Number one, the expertise that exists, we know a lot, but sometimes it's not in the room with the people we serve. Number two, we're managing the wrong business. We have a complete and fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of our business, and we've been managing the wrong one. And number three, our business is complex. So let me start with the first one because it's the easiest. Are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah, so the, the hot philosopher of science. I don't want you to have something about him more. But anyway, so that's, uh, he's written a number of books. But he's written uh, a book called Outliers. And in his book called Outliers, he talks about the 10,000-hour rule. 10,000-hour rule says that if you want to become expert in anything, you have to spend 10,000 hours doing it. So I, I lived in Chicago. I grew up in Indiana. I moved to Ottawa. In Ottawa, when it freezes over like now, they, they open up the canal and there's ice skating. I could not get on the canal with triple axle. In fact, I couldn't even get on the canal and stand up, right? So I'd have to get a sled if I would go on the, on, the, uh, on the canal. So you don't learn to ice skate by just getting on the ice, right? It takes some time. If you're going to be an Olympic skater, it takes 
years and years and years of practice before you're cut. That's the 10,000 hour rule. Now 10,000 hours translates into 6.25 years of full-time employment. And that's if you're spending 100% of your time directly working with people. If you, like most people, spend about half of your time directly working with people, that's actually almost 13 years before you put in your 10,000 hours. What happens in our system is oftentimes that people with the least amount of experience spend the most amount of time with the people we serve. And as you become experts, you move away from direct care and away from direct contact with the people we serve. So our expertise shifts away from actually where the people we serve are. Right? So that's the first problem. So you have to find some way to take that expertise that often is there and move it into the room with the people we serve. Second issue is we're managing the wrong business. Now some people are uncomfortable talking about the, oops, I gotta figure out how to do this. How do I do this? Thank you, Ashley. I need to go down. <laughs> We're just talking about, is this not, okay, perfect. Yeah, we're just talking about the fact that uh, this is fairly amazing classroom, right? So my uh, first document, I have a word process with my dissertation, so the world has changed rather dramatically in the course of my life. But anyway, so some people are comfortable talking about uh, public sector as business, right? So serving uh, people with uh, as a business. Well, here's the deal. If you get a paycheck, you're in a business. So anybody here who's a volunteer, bless you, you're uh, truly the work of angels. But if you get a paycheck, you're in a business. So my question is, what's your business? You have only five choices. There's only five different kinds of business. You've got to be one of these. So which one are you? First, and these are ordered by these two economists, Gilmore and Pine. These are in order of how difficult it is to manage the marketplace. So the easiest markets to manage are commodities markets, raw materials, crude oil, grain, fruits and vegetables. We're not on a commodities market, are we? I mean, every now and then, some of us who serve get treated as commodities. That's a really bad thing when that happens. That's not what we're about, right? So uh, we're not in the raw materials business. You can take raw materials and you can produce something that's more readily available. If I say that the uh, Lansdowne Resort last night 10 minutes up the road or down the road, whatever way that is. I mean, it's up the road, right? So anyway, uh, this morning I had Cheerios for breakfast, right? That's a product. So uh, oats are the commodities, Cheerios are the products. If you purchase gasoline to drive here, that's a product. Crude oil is a commodity. Yes, and we're not a product business, are we? Services. Now, we talk about what we do as services. We organize and finance what we do as services. We manage them. We supervise them as if they're services. But my question to you is, are you really? A service? Let me define for you what a service is and you tell me. <coughs> a service is when you hire somebody to apply a product for you. you. Hire somebody to apply a product for you. So if I spell on this tie, I like this tie, my daughter gave me this tie, I am completely incompetent to clean it. So I would hire a dry cleaner to do that for me. That's a service. If you eat meat, my guess is most of well, you might, but most of you don't have livestock in the backyard. Honey, <laughs> let's have chicken tonight when you go kill one, right? You probably hire the butcher or the grocer to do that for you. Now they're in Ottawa, right? Outside of Ottawa, there's a place called Cornwall. In Cornwall, there's a place called Roland Slaughterhouse. 
and their branding is custom killing. <laughs> Yikes. I'm hoping they're talking about animals, but not anyway. So, that being said, I enjoy an occasional steak. I don't want to kill the cow. I would be happy to hire the butcher or the grocer to do that one. That's a service. If you have just enough of the answer training today, and you get home and say, I don't want to cook dinner, let's go out to eat, and you go to a restaurant, that's a service. You're hiring somebody to prepare dinner So we like a restaurant? As long as you keep your tables filled and have people coming back, you have a successful business. That's how we're organized. That's how we're financed. Right? Keep your tables filled. Keep people coming back. But is that actually what we're doing? Is that actually the essence of public mental health? Fill your tables, get people coming back? Hmm. Probably not. Type of business is an experience. So uh, I moved to Ottawa in 2008. So I'm a landed immigrant at the moment in Canada. So uh, I don't know if you know anything about the immigration uh, regulations in Canada, but now I am required to mention hockey in every public appearance. So uh, if, you, uh, if you go into uh, into uh, DC and see a Capitals game, what are you purchasing with a ticket? You're purchasing a, a memory, right? An experience. If you load up your family and fly them down to Disney World, what are you purchasing when you take your family to Disney World? You're purchasing a, an experience, a memory, right? So I was down in Orlando. I noticed there were some parents who were purchasing the long experience. Right? They're taking their kids when they're three or four or five, and there you're purchasing a pain in your butt, right? You need to wait until your kids are eight or nine and actually encode the experience because they're not going to remember it when they're three, right? So anyway. All right, so is that what it's about? So long as the people we serve like us, so long as uh, they think we're cool, is that enough? Is consumer satisfaction our ultimate outcome? I think our responsibilities might actually go a little bit beyond that, don't they? So the final and the most difficult kind of business to manage are businesses in which the purpose of the business is to help people change their lives in some fundamental way. The business exists to help people change their lives in some fundamental way. It's called a transformational offer. My guess is that almost everybody in this room wakes up in the morning and goes to work because you believe that you can help people change their lives in some fundamental way. If you are, in fact, engaged in a transformational offer. So why is that relevant? Everybody agree with that? Don't you, that's that what you're about? Or are you about getting them to show up so that you can get your pillow out, right? <laughs> I think that's what we got in the field, right? Okay. All right. So um, why is that relevant? You already knew that, right? Why is it relevant? Because you can't manage what you don't measure. You can't do it. You can pretend to do it. You can delude yourself into thinking you're doing it, but you can't actually manage what you don't measure. I mean, you could have driven here without a dashboard on your car. You could have faked your way through, probably. But I guarantee you, if you drive any length of time without a dashboard, you will get in trouble because you can't actually manage what you don't measure. If you manage your chain account like I do, you're going to ballpark it. You're fine if you're flush. If you get tight, 
you will be in trouble because you can't manage what you don't measure. So if you're not measuring the transformational aspect of what you do, you can't manage it. You can pretend to manage it, but you can't actually manage it. And you can't manage what you can't define. I'm sorry, you can't measure what you can't define. So if you can't define the transformational goals of your work, you can't actually measure it, and therefore you can't manage it. So what do we end up doing? We start managing services because we define it and we measure it. If you want to change it, if you want to change things, if you want to manage the reason you wake up in the morning, you have to measure transformation. And to measure them, you have to define them. Okay, the third problem is that it's complicated. And the adult system is complicated. The killer system is way complicated, but the adult system is also complicated, right? Because guaranteed in every exchange, there's at least three people involved, right? There's the person receiving the care, the person providing the care, and the person paying for the care. There's always at least three, and sometimes there's way more than three. Sometimes there's a probation officer, sometimes there's multiple providers, right? You have all these different people, and they have different perspectives. Do you always agree with the county? Of course not. Does the county agree with you? Of course not. Does the county agree with the state? Of course not. Does the state agree with the county? Yeah, but here's what happens. Honest people, honestly representing different perspectives, have to disagree with each other. In fact, you're morally obligated to disagree with each other. One thing I guarantee you, if you worked yesterday, you were morally obligated to disagree with something. And chances are you're morally obligated to disagree with somebody else every hour you work. Because honest people, honestly representing different perspectives, have to disagree. So what that does is because the system is complex, because there's so many different people involved in the system, that creates these tensions that come out of honest people just doing their best based on their perspective. That's not actually a problem. It's the reality of a complex system. So what, the, what does that mean? Well, I think what it means is in terms of considering how to manage a transformational offering that's complex, it's really about conflict resolution. It's really about dispute management. It's about managing all these different perspectives at the same time. So what do we know about dispute management that might help us think about how we might manage develop public mental health systems? We know a lot, right? I mean, there's libraries on conflict resolution and entire professions. Anybody here a lawyer? Why do lawyers exist? You've asked that question before, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, laws exist in a civil society. That's what makes a society civil, right? But the reason laws exist is it creates a platform for resolving disputes. So we have thousands of years of experiences with resolving disputes. Lawyers exist to represent citizens to that platform, right? That's what, how it's set up, right? And so, uh, we know a lot about conflict resolution. But you can still have its simplest concepts. There's two fundamental principles that have to happen. Two things have to happen if you're going to have any hope of resolving disputes. First, you have to have a shared vision. You can't resolve a dispute if you don't have a shared vision. It's impossible. There's no peace in the Middle East. Why is there no peace in the Middle East? It's not the It's actually simple. There's no peace in the Middle East because there is no shared vision of what peace would be. You talk to the Israeli people, you talk to the Palestinian people, you'll get two completely different definitions of peace. You cannot possibly hope to have peace until you can at least first agree on what peace might be. So, do we have a shared vision of the adult mental health system? 
think we do. I don't think all we play this out, but I think it's there. I think I want to ask each of you why you got to your work, you to write down why you chose to get into the kind of work that leads you to sit here today. And if I were to stand up here and read back to you what everybody in this room said, I've done this. You know what I think I find? You know what we find? That almost everybody in the room would say stuff like, I want to make a difference. I want to have an impact. I want to help people. I want to help people with millions. That's the shared good. That's the one thing, and it's probably, quite frankly, the only thing that we all have in common. We all got into our work in the first place to help people. So that's a shared vision. So the shared vision is necessary, but it's not sufficient. I was teaching a class at the University of Ottawa. I was talking about the shared vision thing. And, well, I said, Dr. Elias, can you have a shared vision and a hidden agenda? <laughs> what do you do with a hidden agenda? What's your moral obligation to the hidden agenda? Expose it, right? You have to lay it on the table. And by the way, that includes your own hidden agenda. That's your responsibility. I've been a talk with a group of political appointees and I asked the same question. One of them said, well, it depends on whose agenda. No, it doesn't, right? If there's a hidden agenda, you have to lay it on the table. That's your moral obligation. That's what transparency is, right? You lay it on the table. I don't know about you. I, I think working with people is a blessing. I don't think that's what burns us out. I don't think actually working with people is what burns us out. I think it's all the crap that gets in the way with working with people. Those are all the hidden agendas. Those are all the other kinds of stuff it makes our work complicated. So the second fundamental principle, if you're going to be able to manage conflict, is you have to be able to communicate the shared vision so that it's available at every table. And this is where we as a field have historically failed. We absolutely failed to communicate the shared vision. I think it works something like this. How many people here work directly with People. You work directly with people, you're in the perfect possible position to exercise a shared vision, aren't you? I mean, you're sitting in the room with them. You can listen to their story, you can talk in their language, you can recognize their unique circumstances. I bet you do everything in your power to make your work about them, don't you? You are the perfect possible position to exercise a shared vision. How many of you ever work as a supervisor? Yeah, how many of you are not going to raise your hands no matter how many options I do? <laughs> <laughs> I was doing a talk in Pittsburgh. There's about 600 people in the audience. I want to make a point about them. Okay, how many people here consider themselves to be human beings? <laughs> only about 60% of the audience actually raising their hands. So I just thought you'd be careful traveling in Pittsburgh. We're not sure what's going on. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so I didn't have to follow up questions about right. So you got to communicate. So if you're working as a supervisor, right? You're working as a supervisor. You know, the research on supervision is rather fascinating. The um, majority of time spent on supervision, you know what's been on? It's been on stuff like managing vacation coverage, handling interpersonal conflict in the workplace, teaching people how to do the bureaucracy. Not all that much time 
in supervision is spent on helping people change their lives in some fundamental way. Remember what the business is. The business is helping people change their lives in some fundamental way. The business becomes you know, one step removed, one step removed from the actual work. It starts to become about something different. It starts to become about us. By the way, that walk just continues on. Right? So if you're on a program, you're on a program, what's the first thing you do before you open the doors to the program? All right, what's, all right, I bet you many of you, when you got your jobs, you showed up the very first day at work. And on the very first day you were at work, you were probably handed a notebook or a three-ring binder. And you probably had to sign something to say you received it or read it even, right? Policies and procedures, right? You can't have a program without policies and procedures. What kind of program would that be? Right? So people who manage programs have this really interesting conflict, the tension between individual and uniform. So how do you do uniform individuality, right? It's practically an oxymoron. I do an implementation training in northern Wisconsin, and uh, we're talking about struggles. This is not easy to do. Training is just the start. The training is just to give you enough confidence to try. The learning that you occur by doing. Right? So it's a journey. It's not a kind of um, Anyway, so we're talking about struggles. And uh, the director of residential services at this large agency that's using this approach said, yeah, John, my staff just doesn't see the value of the hands in this case. I said, well, that's interesting. Why is that? He said, well, we run a program here, and a program, everybody gets the same thing. So staff find it distracting to pay the attention to individual differences, so they don't matter. <coughs> you know, as soon as they have 2.30, you're going to have anger management therapy. It doesn't really matter whether you have anger management needs or not. <coughs> Does that make sense? Now, that would be brilliant. It would be brilliant if we were going to bypass surgery. Bypass surgery has become a routine miracle because if you follow the clinical protocol, you get good results. We could probably buy this. I'm not recommending it, but it's become that routine. Lasix is the same way. That's why if you have to get that kind of work, you go to somebody who does it a lot. Because if they follow the clinical protocol, you get good results. <laughs> people who do it more times, they do better because they're reaching the 10,000-hour rule, right? That's why you do it that way. Here's the problem for us. We're not doing bypass surgery. The reason bypass surgery is so successful is because the patient population is extremely homogenous. Right? It's relatively healthy adults with one or more included arteries. If you follow the clinical protocol, you get good results. You take 10 people with schizophrenia, you got 10 different stories. You take 10 people with bipolar disorder, you have 10 different stories. You have 10 people who have survived serious trauma, you got 10 different stories. We do not have homogenous patient populations. And so there's absolutely no way, no way, you will ever be successful running a program in which you treat everybody the same. It's not going to happen. And if you've ever heard anybody say, well, we can't set a precedence, you've lost. You've lost. You can't actually have a successful program if you're making decisions about you based on decisions you made about you. It doesn't work because the two of you are too different. It's not going to work. How do you individualize with a program framework? How do you create an opportunity to have uniform individuality? Build on the strength of the program, which is uniformity, but also allow individualization. Well, you have to have a model, because if you don't have a model, 
it doesn't work. You end up going back to what I would call the generic model of fairness, which becomes a moral justification for a program model. Well, we're going to be fair here, so we're going to treat everybody the same. That's the generic model of fairness. Now, my parents raised four kids, and they really valued fairness. Fairness was really, really important to them. But they used the generic model. They treated all their kids the same, and they worked hard at it. Right? But I'll tell you, one of their kids, it got a little strange. So let me give you an example. Um, my brother got his PhD, and my parents decided to get him golf clubs. A couple years later, I got my PhD. Guess what my folks got? Stop, stop, stop asking. Do I play golf? No, I don't play golf. Sometimes giving everybody exactly the same thing doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. If you don't have a model that allows you to justify shifting it, you've got a problem. Because somebody coming afterwards say, well, that's not fair. Okay. Under the system level, the vast majority of systems make the vast majority of their decisions. How? Under the state of Virginia, make the vast majority of the decisions. Who gets the money? Right. And what do they make who gets the money out? Activities and professionals, right? I mean, you get money for so many days, so many visits, so many uh, whatever sessions, so many caseloads. You guys manage your caseloads? Managing caseloads is a service system. You know, do I have enough people? Because it incentivizes you to keep people who don't need you, right? Because it's easier to manage somebody that doesn't need you. Okay. So if you manage your workload, that's a transformational management. And your caseload is managing a service. There's a big, big difference if you wrap your head around the implications of managing transformation. So why does the state manage the system by allocating dollars for the activities of professionals? Why does that happen? Because you can't manage what you don't measure. You can't do it. So what do we measure really, really, really well? Dollars, right? I mean, people go to prison for failing to measure dollars with reliability and validity, don't they? Right. Right. What do we measure next best? Activities of professionals. I bet you many people in this room spend a substantial amount of your time filling out forms with activities. How do you spend your time? Right. Those are the two things. So is it any surprise that policymakers, when they're forced to create business models, use the information that they have and they trust to build their models? So is it any surprise that we end up managing a service system? Because that's the information we got. Because what we've done is we failed. What information are not available to policymakers? The shared vision. So how on earth can the state of Virginia make their decisions based on the best interests of the people we serve? How can they do it? They don't have the information. So what that means is if you want to be different, if you want a system in which everybody in the system comes back to What's in the best interest of the people we serve? Only way that can happen, the only way, is if the people who need it the least, the people who are actually in the room with the people we serve, take it upon themselves to create and communicate the shared vision so that it's available at every other table where decisions are being made. That's what the answer is. That's what it is. In fact, that's all it is. It's a strategy of creating and communicating the shared vision so that you have the possibility, at least, that everybody in the system, no matter where they sit, whether they're in the room with a the person, they're a supervisor, they're a program manager, they're an agency director, they're a county director, or they're the state, they can come back to, let's make our decisions informed by what's in the best interest of people we serve. So, since it's a communication strategy, right, 
as Joe mentioned, this penometric measure, it has implications, right? So a lot of people have tried to do this by taking measures about the research and plugging them into the service delivery system. My experience is that doesn't work very well. And I think the reason that doesn't work very well is that research has completely different priorities than you do. There's only one reason why you have an assessment process. One reason, and that's to figure out what you need to do to be healthy. Do you believe that you need to understand how people serve? You can't just do whatever it is you do and it doesn't matter who's sitting across from you, right? You have to understand. So you need information. But you only need enough information to figure out what you need to do to be helpful, right? So research is about being as precise as possible. You don't need to be as precise as possible. You only need to be as precise as relevant. So you're trying to gather information, you're trying to create understanding so that you can be helpful. And that's it. So it's a different standard. Right? I think about it, I travel all the time, right? So I was I'm in hotels about 120 nights a year, so I travel a lot. So I was in Pittsburgh the last two nights in Hanson lands out here next week. I'll be in Reading, California, and I'm going to be in Toronto and Los Angeles the week after that. Right? So I travel a lot. We travel that much. You know, this is not my opportunity to see the sights of Lansdowne or play golf for that matter. I'm going to here. Nor Pittsburgh, nor Reading. You spend a lot of time in hotel rooms when you travel that much because it's a job. There's nothing to do in a hotel room except sleep, work, or watch TV. Right? So I do watch some TV. Sometimes it's good stuff. Sometimes I get desperate. Have you ever seen the bodies on the show? Have you ever been that desperate? <laughs> I mean, those folks who get up on stage, you need, what, at least six cuts of your arms, right? I mean, you need to have, and if you want to be a champion, you probably need to have seven or eight distinct muscles in your stomach alone. I don't know about you. How long those folks? I say, you care a little bit too much about your muscle definition. Me, personally, I'm never jumping around it, and that's good. <laughs> that's the disconnect between research and helping people change their lives, right? You're not trying to be buffed. You're just trying to be reasonably fit enough information to be helpful, not too much information. It's going to become a waste of your time. Okay. So, the answer comes from communication theory. Because the idea is actually the only reason you have a measure in human service enterprise is to communicate. You're communicating with the people you serve, you communicate with supervisors, with programs, with county, with state. Right? The only reason you have a, a measure is to communicate some information. So if in fact the primary purpose in human serving agencies is to communicate, why not design the measure from a communication perspective to maximize the communication value of it? So that's a different philosophy of communication. So that has implications. There's actually six key characteristics that make this different than any other measure. It's actually more of a practice model than us a measure model. Anyway, so you know, I have you all day, right? You are here all day. What do we know about adult education? We know that adults are actually children in larger bodies, right? So there's absolutely no way you're going to pay attention all day, right? And you may notice I'm trying to make eye contact with as many of you as possible. Why am I doing that? To shame you into paying attention. <laughs> you know, and I know it, right? But I know, I know you've mastered the single most important educational skill. What's that? Pretending to pay attention when you're actually doing something different, right? So, my son, my son had struggles, but so anyway, he um, when he was in third grade, he had a tough time paying attention. So he came up on his own with this strategy 
to stay on task, and that strategy was to point out every mistake his third grade teacher made. <laughs> Bad idea, right? It doesn't work very well. So no third grade teacher really wants corrective feedback from a third grader, right? So we had to teach him how to daydream while he's still pretending to pay attention, right? Because that, that's an important strategy in education. Anyway, um, I know you've I'm going to make it off, which is what I'm going to say in the next 25, 30 minutes is everything you really have to understand about the ANSYS. If you just suck it up and pay attention for about 30 minutes, you can space out for most of the rest of the day. It'll <laughs> be fine when you have to take that damn test. Uh, <laughs> we right, so. so the six things you really have to understand about this approach. Number one, it's an item level tool designed at the item level. For those of you who are, has anybody here uh, have a background in psychology? <laughs> Were you told that you can't have a single item scale? you remember that from graduate school? You were lied to. There's a whole bunch of lies that were told by I have the same training background. And if you don't believe me that you can't have a single item scale, go to any pediatric, uh, any, oh, sorry, any, uh, what's the, what's the, a separate hospital in uh, in uh, Virginia and ask them how they measure the function of a newborn and they'll say, well, we use the APGAR or the single item scale. So think of the ANSA as a series of APGAR. It's a series of individual items, reliable and valid at the item level, so it's a collection of items. Each of the items are selected because they're meaningful in terms of what you might choose to do next to be helpful. If an item's irrelevant to what you're going to do, get rid of it, you don't need it. An item is uh, the same for everybody. Get rid of it. You don't need it. You only need information itself. We already already endorsed the concept that you need information. The items are intended to reflect that information. That's one of the different versions of the answer, the different versions of the question, that you can create one to fit the information you need. You can use the answer that we're going to train on for a year and say, wait a minute, we're missing this information. Let's add that. That's perfectly fine. You just add, there's actually about 770 items in the various versions that you can pull from or you can create your own, right? So it's designed at the item level. The concept is you only need information that helps you develop an effective plan. The second characteristic is that the levels of the items, the numbers associated with the items, translate immediately into action. The problem with most traditional measurement, like psychometric measures, is they're arbitrary. So please tell me the difference between a 17 and a 13 on a back depression scale. Nobody knows. Even if you brought hair and back, you wouldn't be able to tell you, right? What's the difference? Here's a more subtle question. What's the difference between an 85 and a 78 on an IQ test? Well, now you know that's normed. And if you don't, if you know what a norm is, it's, it's trying to give something that's meaningless a little bit of meaning. That's why you norm stuff, is to give them a little bit of meaning. But does anybody in the room remember the percentile ranks of 85 versus 78? You know 85 has got more intelligence than 78. That's a, it's like about 17.4 versus 13. Around, around that pretty area. But it still doesn't tell you very much. That's a problem. Arbitrary measurement from a communication perspective doesn't work because meaning is actually everything in communication. Right? If I'm saying things that you don't understand, I'm failing to communicate. So meaning is critical. So you can't have arbitrary measures from a communication perspective. So every single number means something, and it means something immediately. So you don't really need to score the answer beyond that for an individual to know what it means. 
everybody knows what it means, it's soon you fill it out. It's not good on interpreting. Okay. And the only reason, the only reason that you're doing an assessment process is to figure out what are you going to do to be helpful, right? So in a transformational world, we're very much focused on our actions that we might take to be helpful. So all the items are actionable. All the levels of the items, the numbers. So this is how it works. Well, the answer, right? The adult needs and strengths assessment. So clearly and explicitly in the title, the concepts of needs and strengths are different for each other. Not everybody buys that. There are strategies that treat strengths and deficits and opposites in the same continuum. My experience is that's a mistake because there are some needs and deficits aren't strengths. There are some strengths and deficits aren't needs. And if you force everything into a continuum, you end up with sort of weirdness. So uh, I just in Pittsburgh and they had somebody documenting the fact that this young person didn't run away anymore with a strength. That's not a strength, that's the absence of a need. Right? So, Okay, so let me give you a couple examples to clarify what I'm talking about. So would everybody agree that if you're working with somebody who's thinking about killing themselves, that's a need? Being suicidal is a need, right? You want to do what you can to prevent a death outcome. If they're not suicidal, it's not a strength, is it? You've got a person who's involved in a spiritual industry, that can be a powerful strength, right? If they're not and they're not interested, it's not really a need, is it? you're not doing evangelical work. I said that in North Carolina, I got myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> they were doing evangelical work. But here's a different example. Let's say you're working with an 80-year-old and they're not working. You're not saying, oh my God, they're not working. We need to get them into another 80. You don't care, right? Okay. So needs and strengths are different from each other. Because we have a 25-year-old who's got some significant job skills. That's an important, powerful strength, right? It's not too relevant for an 80-year-old. Okay. So you're thinking about it differently. So there's different action levels for the needs than there are for the strengths. So here's how it works for the needs. Four levels for all items. Zero, one, two, three. It could be A, B, C, D. It could be 10, 20, 30. You don't want any, sorry. You don't want any number? I mean, the person you serve doesn't care about the number. Meetings made easy. What's that? You are the first caller and will be placed on hold until the next caller arrives. Browns at Northwestern University was an analyst got up and he gave us elaborate theory about uh, this uh, young lady with a panic disorder that he treated. At the end of it, he opened up a question, and somebody raised their hand and said, Doctor, what implications does your theory have, and what do you say to, what you say to your patients? He stopped and thought, and he goes, why don't we really say much of anything about patients? That history in our field, well, we're just kind of outside, and, you know, I was told many times in supervision, well, they're really not ready to hear that. I, I'm a parent of a special needs young adult now, he's got bipolar disorder. I can guarantee if anybody ever said that to me, I would find that so profoundly insulting. Right? Uh, who are we to judge what somebody else is ready to hear? That's our hidden agenda, right? And so you gotta be nice, you gotta be non-judgmental, but you gotta lay it on the table, right? That's really what this is about. Because otherwise it just mucks stuff up, right? Because it's just stuff that's operating in the background and People we serve have the right to know what's in the background in their lives, who is their lives, right? So, okay. So that's why it's a consensus phase. If you really want to get everything, and that's not always easy, but that's why you have a one, right? That's, if you can agree to disagree, that's what you use the one for, okay? Well, we see things differently. Let's figure out what needs to happen to get it resolved. So what we're finding is the number of times where there really is 
concrete disagreement, it's only about 1%. Okay, 1% of the time. Once you get skilled at this, it's very rare that people can't come to an agreement. But you do have to figure out how to do it. Okay, and the final characteristic is there's a 30-day window unless otherwise specified. Why 30 days? If anybody knows, let me know. I don't have the slightest idea. Right? So, uh, <laughs> After example, like the information. <laughs> right, exactly. Hope you can remember. I'm not going over. I'm worried about even that 30 days. Right? Anyway, uh, I'm worried about 15 minutes. So, anyway, um, all right. So uh, 30 days is there for a good reason, but it is a made-up number. So what's the shared vision of the, of the system in Malcolm? People we serve, right? It's not the answer. The answer is not the shared vision. The answer is only an attempt to represent the shared vision. We don't want the rule of the tool interfered with that. So here's how it works. Right? It's there because we're in a transformational environment. So um, I've read a lot of charts. I've read somewhere around 20,000 records of uh, mental health and child welfare uh, care in the U.S. And I can't tell you the number of assessments I've read that's inventory every bad thing this person's ever done. So risk assessments, static indicator risk assessments, are the big offenders of that approach. And they might be slightly better statistical predictions of what happens next, but why on earth are we interested in a statistical prediction of what might happen next? Are we actually interested in helping people change their lives and so forth and so on? Not in predicting how bad they're going to be, but in helping them change their lives and so forth and so on. So although it might be a better prediction, what God awful message to give, if you're high risk, buddy, we're keeping our eye on you, right? <laughs> the only way you ever get better is to die, right? Right? It's the only solution, right? So that's not very helpful. So if you're in fact, and it's, it's, it's actually great. It's great if you think of assessment as justifying service receipt. How many times have you heard that? How many times in your career have you heard people talking about assessments that justify service receipt? That's a disaster for us as a field. A long history, but it's a disaster because what it does is incentivize, let's make sure everybody's got lots of problems and teach them. Because we really don't want people to get better and that's no longer justifying service receipt. If we're actually committed to a transformational environment, we have to give up that history and move past the history. Right? So that's why this is here. It's so that people have permission to get better. That's all. That's the only reason it's there. It's like built in. This is actually the most controversial uh, feature of this approach because people wanted a three months, people wanted a year, some people because they wanted to justify intervention, right? But the concept is you want to give people a chance to get better. You want to give them permission. If you were to become an answer trainer, one of the things you have to do to become a trainer is you have to do your introduction to your answer training. So I was in a trainer program in Guam and the Samoa culture. Guam is an interesting place, right? It's a Two cultures. There's a huge American military base and there's the Chamorro culture and they don't really interact with each other. So anyway, uh, the Chamorro culture is interesting. It's kind of a combination of Polynesian and Korean and Vietnamese kind of cultures, sort of like the Philippines and that way. Anyway, um, so we're doing this introduction and this uh, young man had grown up in the system. This is basically what he said for his introduction. Because you know what I love about this approach? Is it gives you a chance to get past your just because you've done something a million times doesn't mean you have to do it a million and one times. That's the concept here. If you want to give people permission to get better. So that's why you use a 30 day window. But the 30, so in other words, you're, talking, you're not doing it every 30 days. You're talking about what's been going on in the last 30 days. But that being said, 30 days is a completely made up number. And so you have complete permission to override the 30 day rating period if it's in the best interest of the person. Complete permission. 
So let me give you an example of how that could work. Let's say you've got a guy who's got a drinking problem. He drinks, he drives, he crashes his car, he ends up in the hospital in a coma for 90 days. Let's say you're charged with helping him plan his post-hospital care. Are you going to say, hey, he's been clean and sober for 90 days. I don't worry about that. Oh, I've got a coma, right? Unless you've got some seriously made emergency. But it means nothing. It means nothing. What does everybody, everybody in the world agree? This guy's a three. This guy's a three on Sunday juice. You have complete and total permission to do that, right? Because at the end of the day, what's their job? Figuring out what people need. Figuring out what resources you can have. That's the items in the action. Everything else is just in preparation for that. Okay. So everybody in this room has already done an answer. You've already done. You've been doing answers your entire career. This is just creating a common language approach. And so the real task in training and use is wrapping your heads around this particular way of describing what you've always done. You've always done, you know, what do I need to work on with this person? What are their assets? This is just putting a common language framework into it. So now you look at this stuff. You look at this stuff. It wouldn't surprise me if you're thinking to yourself, well, gosh, this is pretty subjective. Right? Is it subjective? Absolutely. It's proudly subjective. Proudly subjective. Now, you may have heard in graduate school that subjective means unreliable. You were lied to. Subjective means judgment was involved. Judgment is actually required, right? You can't actually do an answer without thinking. You can't do an answer without talking to people. Let me tell you a story. I got my PhD in 1981. I'm old, right? So, um, some of you might not have been born. Uh, but uh, those of you who were, you might remember the 19, early 1980s. Those were the halcyon days of behavioral assessment. Our motto was spare the rod, use behavior mom, right? So uh, that's how I was trained. I was trained in objective behavioral assessment. That was my, that's my background. I did my dissertation. I published it in a prestigious journal. Alan Katz was the editor. He said this is groundbreaking. I'm sure he wants to take that statement back. <laughs> I was able to prove. I demonstrated that the press people, as they got better in the hospital, moved their arms more in the lunchroom. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> Does anybody care? <laughs> no. Uh, it's highly, highly objective. Everybody can see, oh, look, they're moving their arms. They're moving their arms. We all agree they're moving their arms, right? Highly objective, but absolutely trivial, right? You know what the backstory was? They're eating. <laughs> 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 yeah, the press people, when they get less depressed, their appetite returns, right? And the only place you're allowed to eat in the hospital is the lunchrooms. And most people go to the face plant. They actually do the food in their mouths. But no one would say, okay, hey, we're going to treat depression. Let's get everybody moving their arms, right? That's, anyway, objective stuff. Well, let's, here's another example. What's the most violent thing on TV? Well, if you use objective criteria, you come to the conclusion by counting acts of violence. You come to the conclusion that cartoons are football, right? Are the most violent. Does anybody in this room actually believe that watching the playoffs or watching the roadrunner dodge the animals and wild coyote is somehow more disturbing to people than watching an episode of Criminal Minds that shows zero actual episodes of violence but implies incredibly sick stuff? Does anybody believe that that's actually somehow healthy relative to, well, probably not, right? 
the nature of our work is subjective. It is subjective. The key is to not pretend it's otherwise. We've made a huge mistake going around this method of uh, focusing on objective stuff that's trivial. How many things don't matter? We hospitalized a young lady at the hospital because her dog died. The objective idea of death of a pet, the vast majority of people do not have a post-traumatic response from the death of a pet. She did, and there's actually good reasons why she did. That's our work. We're understanding a person in a culture and an environment. That's subjective. You can't do it any other way. Right? That's the essence of what we do. The key is to not pretend it's not subjective. The key is to make it consensual. Everybody's on the same page with exactly what judgments are being made. It's transparent. The only judgments that are being made are judgments that matter in terms of what happens next. I mean, if you do this well, those are the two key principles to doing this job. Consensus and transparency. This matters. This is all get this creating the shared vision. The shared vision matters in terms of how you develop a plan, and it gets communicated so that everybody else at the table can do it. So that's how this is. It's, it's probably subjective. The great irony is it's actually more wild in the field than traditional objective measures. So this, the emerging research is objective measures. You put them in the field, they don't work because they end up trivial. They end up not meaningful. And if you have paperwork that's not meaningful, how good is that paperwork? meaningful, right? And so it ends up deteriorating over time. This quite a bit of research how it demonstrates that. The field reliability of the answer and the camp is higher than the training reliability. When you embed it in the work. Alright. So I think that takes us up to a natural breaking point. So uh, you know Churchill said the brain can only absorb what the seat can endure. So I suspect <laughs> we've probably passed that, that threshold. So see you in about ten minutes, all right? That's a very highly contextualized information that has no application for you. So, which I think is another word for anyway, but So here's the story behind all of the research that shows us that you can't change the order of items or you can't add or subtract items without changing the reliability of a measure. All of that comes from research by people like me, right? Psychologists who work in universities. So what are the tensions? under which psychologists who work at universities operate for their competing pressures. Well, you need to publish, right? But lots of, there's some beautiful, Virginia has some beautiful universities. If you are teaching in a beautiful university and you have to publish, don't you also want to never leave that beautiful university? So how do you publish without ever leaving the university? That sounds like a challenge. Now they're a bright group. They've solved that problem. They create subject pools with introduction to psychology students. So they give intro to psychology student this very low grade Sophie's choice. You either write a paper or participate in the experiment. How many people here participate in the experiment? Did you care? No, you care less, right? You just didn't want to write the paper. Yeah. So now how do you teach introduction to psychology? There's one of the rules of teaching, you have to maintain the love past the drop date, right? Uh, because enrollment is dollars in, in the university, right? If you have your students dropping out like flies because you're boring, you will not be at that beautiful university for any length of time. So uh, you don't start introduction to psychology with neurobiology. You'll be losing people like flies. So that's how it's something more interesting. Lots of people start with social psychology, but doesn't that make psychology look a little manipulative? 
So it wouldn't surprise me, for those of you who did, it was about half of this particular room participated in that science, uh, when you didn't care at all about the nature of that science. Uh, it wouldn't surprise at all if you're kind of wondering why you're wasting your time. So of course, if you're trying to figure out what this is about, of course the order of the items matters. Of course whether you ask a question or not matters, because as you read each question, you're coming to a further understanding of what the study is about. Take that same logic and apply it to your work. Does anybody in this room actually believe that the way you get accurate information from somebody that you work with is to force them to answer questions in an order you predetermined. <laughs> Isn't actually our work relational? Isn't actually the way you get accurate information? Accurate information is just, you know, liability or fancy words for accurate information. Don't you get accurate information by creating relationships? Isn't that really how it works? And so my experience is you don't create a relationship by forcing your agenda on another person, right? You actually have to let them tell a story. You have to give them uh, respect and other kinds of things create that kind of relationship where people tell you things. So the context of communication in research on university freshmen versus helping people change their lives is completely different. And applying things that we learn from that one context to the other context doesn't make a lot of sense. So you can do this in any order you want. Here's an idea. Have you ever been in the position you're sitting there in that stupid half-gallon thing. Have you been there? And the position of flying to the office and flipping through your medical record while they're asking you questions and you feel like you have 3.5 minutes to take care of your entire medical needs. And maybe if you're smart, you wrote out your questions beforehand because otherwise you get overwhelmed to see the moment and you lose. I don't know about you, I walk out of somewhere and go, oh, I forgot to put that right. So have you had that experience? That's kind of the standard of medical care, right? Have you ever had a physician who's actually reviewed your medical records before they entered the office? No. Anybody? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Did you like it? Well, you're a kid. You might not remember. Anybody recently? Yeah. You, that's great, isn't it? No, I mean, it's pretty nice. Yeah. Isn't it nice? I mean, don't you feel respected? Don't you feel like the person has taken the time to get to know you? But you can use the answer in exactly the same way. You're probably going to know a lot about the people you serve from other sources before you ever meet with them. You can actually populate an answer and use it as a way of, this is what I think I understand from your history. If you want a nice engagement strategy, that's a good one because it communicates respect. It communicates that you've done due diligence to understand something before you meet with them. It also reduces contention, right? Because you're letting people know what you know. I know some folks who wait to see what people tell them and use that diagnostic. That's a hidden agenda, right? That's guaranteed to settle a problem later in the relationship because if you know that you find out something before and you're not revealing what you already believe you know, that's problematic, right? Because it's all about building trust, right? So anyway, think about doing it that way. So pre-populate the answer and use that as a way of establishing whether or not you're on the same page starting out. Okay. But anyway, regardless, you can do it in any direction, any order you want. Don't get locked into the form. I like to start with functioning and end with strength. So um, functioning is the first on the form. The only reason it's first on the form is uh, what's the first thing you ask people when you run into on the street? How you doing, right? So that's the functioning assessment, right? I mean, how are you doing across the different life domains? And sometimes you don't really need that when you run into on the street. But 
All right, so we'll just walk through these items and I'll talk about them. So physical medical is um, both any sort of motor sensory problems or any health problems. So uh, a one would be a mild treatable condition, a two would be a chronic disease, a three would be life-threatening. HIV is a two, AIDS is a three, diabetes is probably a two, but if you already have, um, you already have, I don't know, kidney failure, it could be a three, or be a really, really fragile uh, diabetes, it could be a three. Uh, if you're great at diabetes self-care and you're hemoglobin A1C, you're not on sex, okay, maybe it's a one, but you should keep an eye on it, it's all managed. Uh, also, physical problems would be here. I'm a, I'm a one, I absolutely have to have these glasses, that's a physical need. As long as I have the glasses, I'm fine. I'm also the poster boy for bicycle helmets. So when I was uh, growing up in Speedway, Indiana, I was with the basketball practice, basketball beginning. You know, so I was flying back from basketball practice. I, this is a very Midwestern experience. I rode into a swarm of locusts. I crashed my bicycle. I got a concussion. I uh, lost my sense of smell. And any memory of ever having lost a Donna Lucia. The one has had more implications for me than the other, right? So for those of you who are too young to know Donna Lucia, I don't know what a normal family is. So the loss of smell has had no implications, right? So uh, actually it's starting to come back. So uh, I smelled perfume for the first time about two weeks ago in Los Angeles. For about 35 years. So anyway. Um, now, if I were a gas line repairman, I would be a three on physical. Issues. That would be a dangerous physical problem. And your job would be to help me convert into an ANSA trainer where I'd be safe, right? So this is a person in an environment kind of way of understanding of it. Is this something that needs to be addressed within the context of this person's life? Family functioning is probably uh, the hardest item to rate because it requires you to first define family. And family is a very culture-bound phenomenon and very dramatically across different uh, cultures and different people. And so we recommend you ask the person you serve to find who their family is so you get a sense of that. It can be quite complicated sometimes. If you don't know, then biological relatives are significant others with whom they're still in contact. So if they have no family contact, because they haven't seen their family members in 20 years, then their family function is zero. Here you're asking, do you need to do a family system in a uh, There is no family. You know. The only advantage of having no family is you're guaranteed not to have to do a family therapy. Right? So that's a zero on family function. Uh, so a three would be like it's very, very problematic. So if you get earlier intervention with those same those same people end up with a zero on family, have no family. If you get them earlier, they might have a three, and that's why they end up with a zero. Is that if you intervene with a three and move it down, that's good. But what happens, of course, with people with major mental illness is they tend to over time burn out the families, right? So you need to help them with that, not only a family systems intervention. <laughs> Social functioning is um, a very broad item, so it captures any sorts of issues with uh, uh, people's relational worlds. These are needs that have problems, they're bad things that are happening. So if you're completely socially withdrawn, that could be a three if you uh, are fighting all the time, you have very, very problematic social relationships, that's going to be a three. If you're uh, 30 and all your friends are nine, that's going to be a three. Right? If you're 21 and all your friends are 65, that could be a three. Right? And so there's all sorts of different things. If all your friends are the bloods, that could be a three. Right? So uh, any sort of problem in the relational world you're putting in. 
employment is the one that gets the stickiest because and this is a philosophy, right? I already talked about this one. If they're work age and they're not working, that's a three. It's about the lot, not about the lot. So it's not because they can't work and then therefore you give them a zero. If they're retirement age, if they're over 65, well then that's no longer relevant, that'd be a zero. If you uh, work with transition age youth and it's not an issue, although that's very uncommon, so uh, it wouldn't be an issue. It could be Same thing. If they're work age, you're not going to make that decision for them. You're the, you're going to look. You may, you may, well, I'll show you when you trade treatment plan. You may make that a background need, just something you're going to understand, but it's still a need. And there are people who are disabled, developmentally, who work. And so it is possible. And so you just have to see what's, you never take it off the table, but you may not send them to both rehab. Right? And I'll show you how you do that. You make it what's called a background need. Now, you can have a situation where you've got somebody who's a, a stay-at-home parent, and that could be a, a zero, right? Because they actually have a job and it's raising their kids. So. <laughs> I was talking to somebody in Pittsburgh, and I said, my kid wants to be a stay-at-home kid. That's an interesting career move, right? I said, well, that's better than getting like, pregnant. <laughs> they can stay at home mom. Recreational is are there any problems with the use of leisure time? So um, this actually comes from a consumer perspective. So, uh, so a lot of uh, groups with uh, the people uh, that we serve, and uh, what almost all of them want is stuff to do, right? So uh, that's what this is about. Sometimes there are other needs get in the way uh, of that, and so they're prevented from recreational activities because of their other needs. It's problematic. It's called a cascade, right? So one need comes from all the other areas and so forth. So um, you want to look out for that. Would you consider recreational activities, staying at home and playing video games all day? Possibly at least a portion of it. So you want to, it might be a, a social functioning problem, right? So if they have leisure time activities that they enjoy. I might ask what they do in the video games. If they're playing Sims is one thing. If they're playing Coastal, I might be worried. You know, if they play their thing and saying, oh, I'm playing uh, first-person shooter games, I might think about it quite differently than if they're staying at home and, and playing pro-social games, right, or even Tetris, right? So I think it kind of depends. Oh, as you'll see that every time you ask a question, I end up ultimately saying, well, that depends, right? Because you're always contextualizing it within those different kinds of things. Um, so in that circumstance, maybe they have their leisure time is taken care of, but their social functioning is poor, so you may want to say, is there a way to, to use what they like in the leisure time, their branch out with their social activity, you know, that kind of thing. Also, whether they're playing with other people. They could be, right? Because you can actually be uh, engaged in social relationships through multiplayer games, and that's actually quite social. Right? So it can, I mean, the, the new technology is quite complicated to wrap your heads around it. Yeah, it's social by some definitions. Social by some definitions, that's exactly right. Social functioning, social functioning. So uh, uh, folks who uh, have on the autism spectrum frequently apply the single most common need for kids or for adults with autism is they have social functioning. I guess I'm thinking more in terms of the level of distress that 
Oh, yeah. Well, there is that personal choice thing where you have the conversation with them. So if they have a feeling, if they're completely socially isolated and they're comfortable with that, and as you talk to them about the implications of it, this is where your responsibilities come in in terms of uh, taking the broad expertise of professionals, you know, so that they may, there may be implications of their decision to be more comfortable with fewer people, right? And they need to have that conversation so that they understand that when they make that choice, there are implications that there may be other things in their life they'd like, the only way they can get to that point is to develop social relationships, right? So that's what the conversation you're going to have. Ultimately, you're going to reach a consensus, right? And, you, and, and for folks who really are not comfortable with a heavy dose of some more um, introverted, they might choose to have a, a lower dose of social relationships with other people. That's what you're looking for. You're looking to understand it. But I wouldn't just take it right at face value and say, well, I don't want to be around other people. Okay, we'll give you a zero. I have that conversation. Intellectual, this is the IQ item. Now, this is probably not so much shared vision, right? Because this is based on a formal testing process. So zero is uh, no problem. One would be low IQ. Two would be uh, mild and moderate intellectual impairment. Three would be severe or profound. Again, People should know that's them, right? So there should be that conversation. But as you get higher, understanding the implications of your developmental and cognitive challenges becomes more difficult, but it's still folks can understand and have the opportunity to hear. So. Sexuality is a really broad item, so any issues of uh, any issues around sex so would be rated here. So of course if you have somebody who's sexually aggressive or abusive, this would be here. If you have somebody who's uh, it's actually promiscuous to the point where it's causing functional impairments, you put it here. If you've got a person who decided they are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual, questioning, whatever, if they're fine with it and their world's fine with it, the zero is always business move on. If they're struggling with it, it could be a one, two, or a three, depending on how much they're struggling with it. If they're fine with it, but their world is struggling with it, it could be a one, two, or a three, depending on how much their world is struggling with it. Right? This is about the what, not about the why. So you want to be able to reflect that. Because either way, you're going to help them, right? In the first case, you're helping them with their own identity issues. In the other case, you're helping them to interact with their world around their sexuality. So. This is how it ends up non-judgmental, right? You can begin to hear how this works. Okay, now there's an issue here. So I'm giving a kind of extreme example. Um, this is a, a youth example, but it's, it's vivid. So uh, a young lady decided her best strategy to avoid premarital sex with masturbation. Her parents walked in on her. Uh, they lived in a conservative Christian community. They took her behavior to the pastor, the pastor took her to the congregation, and the whole congregation put pressure on her not to masturbate. That's indeed out of convention, right? Now, one could make an argument that the young lady was the healthy one in the scenario, but <laughs> to have your entire social network putting pressure on you about very private behavior, that's indeed, right? And so that's how you're thinking about it. Now, I like that example because it highlights one of the key principles here. Don't my average. You can have needs and strengths that exist at exactly the same time. Don't average. There's a tendency for people to say, oh, that church, look at what they did around this issue and wipe them off. That would be a mistake. Right? Just because there's an issue on this dimension doesn't mean that uh, religious spiritual environment isn't a positive for this uh, young lady on a number of other dimensions. So don't average. Strengths are good things, needs are bad things, and they can coexist 
on exactly the same dimension at exactly the same time. Living skills, this is uh, independent living. So uh, money management, we stopped the independent because as we discovered, nobody's independent anymore. So, uh, <laughs> I'm a two because I'm married and it's intervention place, right? So. <laughs> Something like uh, money management, being able to cook and clean, and uh, those kind of things. Residential stability is housing stability. So uh, three would be homeless, uh, two would be moved, and one would be concerned about possible having to move, and a zero would be stable housing in the foreseeable future. Legal functioning, there are um, two definitions of uh, criminal behavior in uh, our system. There's a justice definition and there's a mental health definition. Those two definitions are fundamentally different from each other. The definition of truth is different in justice than it is in mental health. The definition of truth and justice is where there are findings of guilt. They are innocent until proven guilty. Legal functioning comes from the justice perspective. This is about involvement because of findings of guilt. Criminal behavior, which we'll get to later, comes from a mental health perspective. That's what you know about. Because mental health people have a responsibility to do due diligence if they know about something, they need to try and prevent it from becoming worse, right? So that's a different definition. So both of these are embedded in your version of the answer. Legal functioning is strictly their involvement with the courts because of their behavior. So it's about criminality, involvement in the criminal justice system. Sleep is a, a relatively recent addition to uh, this approach, but it's actually the single most common functioning problem in North America. So, uh, and it's also contagious, of course, for people who live in, in uh, congregate environments that don't sleep, cause other people to not sleep, right? So uh, you can have a sleep problem because you have a formal sleep disorder. So uh, you have uh, sleep apnea, or you have night terrors, or you have uh, you walk in your sleep, you have difficulty settling, you have early morning awakening. You can also have sleep problems because you choose to stay up late and play uh, video games with your cousins in Australia and you don't get enough sleep and then you go to work and sleep. Right? That's still a uh, sleep problem. Right? It's a lifestyle sleep problem, which you see all the time as young adults have lifestyle sleep problems. Because there's a lot of evidence that uh, teenagers and young adults actually have the circadian rhythm of vampires. Right? So, uh, <laughs> So it becomes a little bit problematic as they interact with, our, with the real world. But, uh, <laughs> self care is um, the basics. So grooming and toileting and hygiene. This is a big issue for people with developmental challenges because that's oftentimes the cofactor here that you need to address to help them take care of their basic needs. So uh, can you groom yourself, bathe yourself, can you? Uh, feed yourself, can you take care of your elimination, just the basics. You know, historically we call these activities of daily living. So living skills are the higher order, self-care is the lower order. Is there any distinction between those folks who are able to do that, those folks who choose to not do that? About the what, not about the why. Because it's a really rather difficult diagnostic differential. You know? your treatment approach is going to be different, right? In one case, it'll be a treatment target, or it might be a background need if they can't. You're either going to teach them how to do it, or you're going to accept the fact that they can't do it and work around it. In the other case, it becomes an anticipated outcome by addressing their depression, their self-care. Right? So it's 
how you do treatment planning from this now approach to see how those things play out. Because a good treatment plan has a theory of why. Right? But the answer is about the what. If you start with a what, it brings a theory of why. Based on. Can I ask a question? You can ask a really detailed law question. How would you rank hypersomnia? Um, hypersomnia, yeah, that's a great question. Um, sleep is sleep, right? And so if there's too much sleep and it's interfering with function, you can raise that here too. Okay. It's, not, it's not listed in the accurate definition very clearly, and that's probably something we should change. But here's a basic concept. How many people do you serve in the uh, long term? Thousands, yeah, fair enough. Ten thousand, yeah, something five thousand, whatever. A lot of people. There's no way you'll ever describe thousand, a thousand people with eight senses across four levels. It's not going to happen. So the, the uh, anchor definition of the manual. Oh, I probably should have said you know you should be following along in the manual. I'm using the form. I apologize. You should use the manual. So I'm only using the form because it's easier for me to flip through and. Although I don't call myself the author, I am a primary typist, so uh, um, so I know the tool pretty well. So um, I follow on in the man. There's no way, actually, no way that you're going to capture all the people you serve with these anchor definitions. So you have permission to go beyond them. So the concept, and this is when it becomes easy. It usually takes about five answers before it becomes easy. But when it becomes easy is you understand the meaning of the of the item and then you apply the action level. So that's all it is. So but the anchor definitions are just to begin to elaborate the meaning of the item. So there's also a glossary, there's also uh, uh, interview prompts and that kind of stuff that are available to, to help you clarify the meaning of the item. So sleep is sleep, so yeah, so you can go too much sleep but also be ready. So you have somebody who only sleeps. Then I'll be sleep problem. Like that mom I just described, she would have a suspicion of a sudden problem, but an actual sleep problem. The fact that she was sleeping at the meeting without interfering with her compassionate parent, that's a by definition of two months. Great question. Medication compliance. I'm ambivalent about this item because. Um, because this is about people serve, not about uh, intervention. And this is an item that sort of blends those in. It ends up quite important because bad things can happen when people are not compliant with them. So uh, that's why it's there. As you all know, if you've got somebody who really, really, really benefits from the medication and they choose not to take it, uh, that can become problematic, right? So there's all sorts of issues and concerns around this. Let's be careful about it because the interpretation of medication why it's a complicated one. Sometimes it's because, for instance, uh, young adults, men, oftentimes don't really like to take antidepressants. And the reason they don't like to take antidepressants is because of ejaculatory incompetence. A lot of young adult men don't want to lose the ability to ejaculate. Now, they may not be willing to talk to you about that, right? And so, you have to figure out a way to figure out that when people are not compliant, you need all sorts of different things. So just be careful about how you interpret it. That's not you always need to be compliant. It's a flag for understanding you know, what's going on here in terms of why uh, you're not following the recommended protocol. This would include overdoing it. Now, you have some folks that, hey, if one pill helps, 
This is really, are you following the prescribed regimen of the medication? Because it gets dangerous if you're not for all sorts of different reasons. Sure. Is this the type of choices you medication? What about medication that there might be something for a medical problem if they had a medical problem? Yeah, I mean, this is written from a mental health perspective, so I think you're doing that, so I wouldn't get uh, coded here. I mean, Decide as a as a system if you're doing a complex uh, multi-system intervention if you want to have a combined or extended. Uh, some places have done that, and they've actually modified the item to be any kind of medication. Because if you're working with with a person who's depressed and has diabetes and they stop taking their insulin, that can be a real issue. So you could you could opt you could change the item to fit that, and that's really a, a local decision that you can make. So some people do that because of the nature of the people they serve. Mm -hmm. Or they use a medical module, which is another strategy of some folks. Uh, transportation is unmet transportation needs. So um, if you have a car and you can afford gas and your car works, you're good. If you can get where you need to get with public transportation, you can afford public transportation, you're good. In other circumstances, you probably have unmet transportation needs. If you have a family, it'll take you around. I suppose you're okay. Depends on the stability relationship with the family, of course. That might be one at risk of if you're relying on other people and you have to have that relationship in order to maintain that line. So there's some question about that relationship. If you can worry about whether there's access to that transportation, that will be a one right? one place. This is unmet transportation needs. Otherwise, everybody's got transportation needs, right? So that's why it's unmet. It could be, uh, you know, some people use flex funds to help fix cars, right? So they can get their funds. Any questions about the functioning? Additional questions? All right. Uh, the next section of the strengths. This is the only section where you use the strength action lights. The only section. So from family strengths down to volunteering, zero is a centerpiece, one is useful, two is identified, three is not get identified. This is, just to let you know, this the area where most people who don't pass the certification test, this is where they make a fundamental error. The single most common reason for people not passing the certification test is giving people centerpiece strengths in the absence of evidence. Because now you're reversing yourself. So no evidence of a need is a zero. No evidence of a strength is a three. So there's nothing in the vignette that talks about volunteering that are three. Nothing in the vignette that talks about church religious. So family, you know, people say, come on, Doug, we've rated family function, why do we have to rate family strengths? They're different for each other. And you can have added at exactly the same time, have significant family problems and significant family strengths, both at the same time. So that's why it's there. So if you have any positive relationship with family members, that's at least a one. If there's someone in the family who can take a central role in helping you have your needs met, maybe a spouse, maybe a sibling, maybe a parent, that could be a zero. If there's family, that's a two. If there's no family or no contact with the family for a certain period of time, that would be a three. And I would suggest you know, one of the great things about being an adult is you have at any moment in your life the ability to hit the reset button on your family. Right? You can recreate a family and the vision of the kind of family you want. You just have to figure out how to do it and work at it. 
that would be strange to Social connectedness is the yes. Well, the evidence of a failure would be when you ask the person, you know, who's in your family, and they say, well, I got my brother, he lives in, uh, in Arlington, and my sister lives over in Leesburg, and you know, okay, that's evidence of a family. How are your relationships? Well, I'm pretty close to my brother, and I go over and have Sunday dinner with him about once a month, and all, oh, okay, there's a positive relationship that's helpful. And my sister, you know, actually, I live with her, and uh, she actually uh, takes care of me. Oh, wait a minute, I've got to the conversation. I mean, that would always be a conversation. I'm an example of a conversation. Is it how you define family or is it family defined by family? I would ask people to define the family, their family for me. That's where I would start. Uh, now, if they're not capable for whatever reason, or you don't know, then it's biological relatives and their significant others with whom they're still in contact, including the significant other if one exists as a person you're working with. Uh, so uh, mostly people are able to define their families. You may have some challenges, like if you have somebody with a cognitive or developmental challenge, where that question is difficult for them to answer. And so then you can use biological relatives to make them others with whom you're still in contact. But if they consider their family to be like this really close group of friends? Absolutely. That could be family. That's the thing about being an adult, right, is you can't define your family in all sorts of interesting ways. That's why it's culture-bound, right, because there are people, um, like my son, actually, talked about his fellow travelers, right? So he kind of, uh, he's, in, he's in graduate school, he's finishing his PhD in political science, but he has this group of friends who he really has their uh, family-like relationship with or fellow travelers, right? So that happens quite a bit. I've uh, accounted for the Great Foundation, same deal. She, she doesn't have a, a family, they all live in town, they have one brother surviving, but she's got a group of other people that she's formed very, very close relationships with that really function as family members. One's a, one's a retired nun, right, so, but she considers her like a sister, so. Well, she's a sister. <laughs> <laughs> so will you give an example of the question that trips people up with no evidence? <laughs> Well, the question, not, there's no question that trips people up. It's just remembering that no evidence is a three. Right? So when you read a vignette, and there's nothing in the vignette about something, you have to get a three. And some people just, I think they get into the habit of getting zeros in the other items and just do the same thing. Right? So there's, no, there's no trick in a vignette that stumps people. It's just forgetting that the anchor definition, the anchor of the action level is the reverse. All right. Um, optimism is a positive sense one has in one's own future. So uh, it's got to be positive. Now, you didn't have fairly late in life optimism, right? So uh, that might be afterlife kind of, uh, of positive sense of yourself in your future, right? I mean, that's a positive sense of yourself in the future. I suppose from some perspective, you can't get a whole lot more positive than that, right? So anyway, but it's got to be positive, right? So uh, so being dead at 35 is not optimistic. It doesn't have to be realistic, but it can even be delusional, right? But it's on the positive. <laughs> I don't know about you, I miss my delusion. <laughs> 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 
Educational strengths for many, many, many people you serve are going to be a three, right? Because they don't—they're not involved in that education. There are some, however, some of the folks you serve who are in fact getting involved. One of the tragedies of the public mental health—mental uh, health system in general—the thing that the public mental health system in the U.S. is the graduation rate of children uh, with serious emotional behavioral disorders is like around less than 20 percent. So 80 percent of young people without, with, with a mental health need, don't finish high school on time, that's a tragedy, right? A piece of that, there's all sorts of reasons for that, but it's, it's a problem. But it's a problem for you guys, right? Because then you've got adults who have no completed educational experience frequently. So sometimes they decide to go back and complete them. That's good news and so forth. That's what this is about, because lots of the folks we serve get a little bit developmentally derailed getting back on track, and so getting some educational support to develop ways to help you actualize your own dreams is a piece of what we do, right? And so when you have a, if you either have a great deal of commitment to your education, that'll be an educational strength. But usually this is more about are you in an educational program that supports you? So when you, when that happens, that's very powerful. So if you can link somebody to an educational uh, program that actually recognizes their special needs and uh, supports them uh, and managing those and the Special education, that's great. Special education for adults, really. And if they're not in any educational experience, that's a three. Because the absence of a strength is not a need. So it's a very confusing school now. Yeah, right. Yeah. By the way, I, I should comment on what we're talking about your data system as not applicable for a large number of for all the items. Uh, that just means it's not relevant. So functionally, that's the same thing as a zero for a need and a three for a strength. So I would recommend against using the not apple very much. Um, so it doesn't really give you anything. And, and analytically, you're just going to convert those to zeros for needs and threes for strength. So it's never really not apple to not have a family, right? I mean, that's really not, not apple, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, so most of the items are not really. That often exists, but I would recommend that you don't think about using it very often. There might be special circumstances where it's simply not able to assess. Okay. In the educational field, I mean, the key <coughs> component of this is whether or not it's required to meet their career aspirations. Absolutely. So if a person is content with whatever level they've got as far as work, whether or not they're very high educationally. Uh, I mean, if they're a high school dropout, but they have the job that they like, and they don't really care, yep. then wouldn't, would it be a, would it be, it wouldn't be a zero, because they're not. Well, that's a zero, it's a three. Right, zero. It's not a strength. The education would not be a three, instead of an inning. Yeah, I'd put it to three. It's not, it's not something they're going to use. You're not going to, you're not going to build a media, probably, unless they change their mind about their aspirations over time. But at the moment, there's a, you don't have an educational program, that's facilitating your uh, helping them achieve healthy development, right? So that's a three by definition. Right? You have a PhD in biopsychological diversity. Yeah. You're a three. Oh, absolutely. I'm not in an educational program. You can't use any program I'm in to support me in my efforts. 
Now my job history is a zero, right? I have a very strong job history that, that helps me. But my educational strength, I have no educational strength to the I am an educational strength to others, but I'm not, I have no educational strength to myself. Right. If I decide to go get a JD, that's probably other self-harm. But I could be an educational strength. The absence of a strength is not a need, right? So you're kind of capturing, we're beginning to capture with the questions the challenge of this section. It does force you to think sometimes a little bit different than how you're how you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, well, again, it, it goes, yeah, it goes, right, I mean, it goes back to that section, it goes back to that, the point I made earlier, that not everything in the action level describes every situation, right? So I have, in fact, dropped out of school because I stopped going to school, but I, I dropped out because I had enough of it, right? By the time I got a PhD, I've been in school for 20 years, that's enough, right? I hit those, that's enough, right? And so, but that's stopping it, like dropping out of it, right? I mean, so that's not doing it anymore, right? So you can think of it in that way. It's just not a stretch, right? So don't get too uh, married to the actual words on the action levels, because those are just exemplars, right? There are other circumstances that could be no evidence of any of the strengths. There's other examples besides what's listed that could be a centerpiece for any of the strengths. Same thing for the needs, right? There's stuff that's just not listed in the action level. So get a concept of what the meaning of the item is and then how the action level works and that's the easiest way to do this. So educational strengths means there's either a commitment to education and a passion for an involvement by the person or a commitment to that person in an educational program that supports them. So either their internal or external support that they're getting from participating in an educational program. That's what that the intention of that particular item. It's not about an education history. It's about education supports. Well, that kind of protocol is not yet identified. It's identifying that it's not me. It's like uh, well, you could decide. You could be working with a 30-year-old who's been happy uh, and by dropping out of the day. You're working with them for a while, and they get other aspects of their life in order, and they think, well, you know, now maybe I'll, I need to re-explore that. But I've always wanted to right? get that conversation. So that's why not yet identified is the language that's used for the generic action level sort of thing. So you never know. Yeah. He's only a three because he doesn't have that current educational strength. Yeah. Right. So, um, I guess the concept that the absence of a strength is not equal to you. How does that reconcile with then not using the not applicable um, option for that? Because it would seem to me that it's not necessarily a need for that individual at the time. Why wouldn't you just? Because 
the both the same as the they're both you're saying exactly the same thing with both statements. Saying it's not apple and saying it's not string is the same thing. Right? Saying it's not apple and saying it's not a need is the same thing. Right? I mean, there's no conceptual difference in saying I'm not going to think about this versus I'm not going to do anything about this. Right? I mean, the only I mean, there are circumstances for some items, some items where not apple means something, like job functioning. Like, how are you doing in your job at the moment? Well, non-Apple means you're not in a job and you can't rate that. Right? That actually has some meaning. Non-Apple for family? I don't know what that means. Uh, what does that mean? You as a person, you don't need a family? Uh, it doesn't mean anything, right? So not having a family saying non-Apple means exactly the same thing. So there are some items where non-Apple means something. But not very many. Right? But there are some. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we need to play with the anchor there to make it a little less, a little to broaden it out to say that there's no current educational strength. Right. Because I mean that's kind of the concept of it. Right. Right. So, yeah. But that's the meaning of the action level. So I, what we really the, the key here, I think, is to understand the concept of the items and the meaning of the action levels. And don't get too worried about the actual anchor definition because they're broader than what that is. Because there's no way you can establish every circumstance. Like you just, uh, the, all the different examples that you come up with, right? there's no way that you can capture all of those circumstances with the, with the anchor definition. It used to be, when we first started out of this, we gave a lot of examples in the anchor definitions. And what we discovered is the more more examples we gave, the worse it was, because people started to say, well, if it's not one of these examples, then it can't be. So it escalated this particular problem. And so we stripped them down more and more and more so that there is they take as little as possible, really, in the anchor definition for this kind of reason. It's really about the action levels. And the anchor definition is just giving exemplars for those action levels. There is, in the transition page youth version of the answer, there is an item called academic attainment that captures exactly that. So most people, and you could absolutely add that item. Remember I said you can add any item you want and you go through. If that becomes important in terms of how you plan for folks, which it could be, and you can see how that would work if they've attained their goals. And then because if they haven't, then they might be thinking about building educational strengths, but if they have, you wouldn't worry about building it again, right? So um, you could do that. So some of that item exists. I can give you a really good example as to why it's very difficult, um, even for adults. Um, we work with the Hispanic population only. And so these people have come, many of them have a college degree in a foreign country, but they're not legal, legally here. So then they're working as like a dishwasher. But the fact that they have the confidence to get to that level is an extreme strength because 
then if we can get them paperwork, get them documentation, or we teach them English, then they can go back up to that level. Sure. And so, yeah, so you're going to add that item. That probably that particular example probably also capture the job history unless they move right at the completion of their degree. Uh, but you could add the item of educational payment that that'll be perfect. I'm happy to send it to you. Put it in. Easy enough. Right. So that could be very, very important, right? Like I said, a number of ways to use it. So there's a whole kind of school thing that's also an expansion of the of the uh, of the um, Exactly, modules on employment, for instance, that some people use that have career aspirations and, and they have an elaborated assessment. This is uh, the bare bones version. And again, uh, you might want to have a, a planning process uh, in the county to say, well, we'd like to add these additional items. The great irony of this approach is almost every second version you use is longer than the first. Now, every other measure, the second version is trying to make it as short as possible. This, it gets longer. So because you say, well, we really need this, we really need that, once you get a handle on it. What I might recommend is you try it for a period of time and then have some sort of planning process where you say, okay, let's need to add these items, we need to add these items. This item doesn't really work for us, we need to change it and so forth. And I think that's a strategy that a lot of folks use. So. Well, our, our use of public tools is going to be evolutionary. We'll, we'll start with what we have, we'll gather data, we'll look at the data, see what we're what we're getting and then we'll, we'll tweak it as we need to. But I also think it's about understanding the concept of describing you, what you just described could be described as a need rather than a, a strength, right? So past academic history or functioning doesn't have to be uh, outlined. Just because you achieved a PhD doesn't mean that's an educational strength. And I think we can say that if, if there's an issue with somebody who has a higher degree than what they're working at, if you capture that need in job vocational, that their their employment situation isn't what they what it could be, what they would like it to be, then you would capture it there. So we have to orient ourselves to how we describe the individual in the context of needs and strengths. And I think you actually could fully describe the person you described with your existing version with a zero on job history and a two unemployment because they're underemployed, but they have a significant job history that you could use to elevate them. So they have a strength, the strength of job history, because they worked in a position in Guadalajara, but now they're here and they're working as a dishwasher. So they're underemployed, but they have a significant job history. So I do think you can capture the, the concept. By the way, there's a Spanish version of this, if you want to have it. Um, so because that might be helpful, because when you're sharing it, it's English is, is not your first language, and the emerging evidence is that uh, Mental health care was best served in the first language, right? So, so that would be uh, let's see, there is uh, Tagalog, there is uh, Mandarin, there is uh, Chinese, uh, not Chinese, sorry, Vietnamese, Mandarin, I don't think there's Cantonese yet, but we'll work on it. There's French, um, there's Dutch, uh, those are all the ones I know. I think there might be a Herbie, but only of the, on the children. <laughs> So, I'm sorry? So, if I understand it, do you think what's confusing is that it's really community totally opposite thing? No to it all, or there's some significant problems associated with that? Yeah, uh, that's a good way to think about it, right? And that's really the, the guiding principle of are you going to do strength building or not? So, so if the absence of the strength is something you want to address, right, then you do strength building. We'll talk about that. If the absence of the strength is something you're not worried about, 
for instance, you have a circumstance where a, a person does not have any spiritual religious beliefs, right? And that could be no issue for them. There could be another situation where it could be a real problem for them. In the second issue, you're going to be thinking about strength building for that person, right? In the first issue, you're not going to worry about it. Well, that's why you look at the assessment and the plan, right? Because then you look at this. You might have circumstances where you're not doing any strength building. Chances mm -hmm. are you're going to be doing some strength building, but it's going to be different because it's a personal preference, right? Because some people might want to build a talent venture. Some people might want to build a job history. Some people might want to build a spiritual religious place, right? That's going to be different for different people. So, yeah, that's why you have training, really, because this is not simple, right? This is why we have to kind of talk through these kinds of things and figure it out. That's good. So, you need a question. not necessarily severity. It can be or it, can be. it may or may not be. It may not be relevant. So that's how you have to create a mindset with the strengths that a three could mean something you want to build, or it might mean something you just don't worry about. But a zero on a need could mean something that's not there, or something you just simply don't know about that's actually there that you missed, right? So, so one of the things, for instance, the same concept is that it's not uncommon to look at the second assessment, and it's actually worse than the first. Because sometimes, for some folks, it takes a while to learn what the needs are because they don't tell you, right? And so and the interpretation of that is of two types. First is you have to understand the trajectories of recovery with that kind of what's historically called a therapeutic hook, right? And I don't think it's actually a therapeutic hook that you have to get worse before you get better. It's that people reveal in a slower way. But it also means you have some learning to do in your engagement process. Because the quicker you can get to that understanding, the better off. And so what some places have learned how to do is avoid that upsurge and needs by doing a more thorough job up front. And that's that working smarter rather than harder kind of implication uh, of this kind of approach. Is that what people end up learning experientially, and I could say it until I turn blue and it wouldn't have any meaning to you, is that sometimes if you figure out that what we do is we tend to invest in equal portions of time across the history of an experience, but actually you invest a lot more early, you actually get better outcomes because, in fact, it's that early understanding that drives success. You're treating the fifth session the same as the first session, the same, same as the 50th session, is a mistake from a transformational perspective. But that's, again, the kinds of implications that come from doing this over time. So there's really no way to wrap your brain around all those implications in one day trying to start the process. All right. That's right. So keep, keep the questions coming because it's really, really important that we kind of wrap our heads around uh, this uh, perspective. All right, job history I've just already alluded to. So uh, this is, it's one thing to work with somebody who's never worked than to work with somebody who's had a significant positive job history. It's way easier to get a job if you already have a job. And of course, it's easy to get a job if you have a job at the moment, right? But it's easier to get a job if you have a work history than if you don't. If you don't have a work history, then you have to find a way to create a work history if that's the direction you're going. Here's the same deal. You might not be working on developing that strength for certain people. Right? For certain people where it's just not a priority either from their perspective or from uh, 
physically possible from the fact that we're a developmentally appropriate perspective to fill in a job history. But there's a lot of folks who are actually exactly what Vocational rehab, sheltered employment, all those kinds of stuff of building a job history is what this stuff is about. Town's interest is uh, widely um, widely uh, described. So it's hobby, athletic, artistic. You have things you like to do. Uh, if you can convert town's interest into vocational, uh, here's a, a classic strength building example. So this is from a transition age young adult. Uh, they're doing the uh, the Hansa transitional with him, uh, trying to figure out what he's going to help him do, figure out what he's going to do with his life. Uh, so doing the uh, the strengths, they get the town's interest, they like asking what he likes to do, so I can hang out with my friends. Hanging out is not a town's interest, by the way. So um, <laughs> ask another question, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. In his case, was spot on. They asked him, what do you like to watch on TV? You like to watch those, you know, the oxymoron of competitive cooking, you know, those testosterone-infused cooking shows, the iron chef. All right, so there's a window. So that moves from a three to a two. No, and then you got something this guy likes. Well, then they followed up, right? And strength building is all about following up. So they actually get linked this guy to a culinary school. And you can get into culinary school no matter how derailed your previous academic friend is, right? It's a different kind of learning, right? Two years later, he's got a centerpiece vocational strength just because somebody asked him, what do you like to watch on TV? And then followed up, right? So that's really strength building. Towns and interest is also important because one of the things we're learning in the collaboration is that strengths actually, strength-informed care actually has four components. Four components. So sometimes it's using strengths to address needs. Sometimes it's using strengths to promote healthy development. Sometimes it's building strengths. And sometimes it's preventing the addressing of needs from destroying strengths. All four of those things are, the fourth gets completely ignored frequently in strength-based discussions. But sometimes what happens is in the process of addressing needs, we destroy strengths. And that's a big problem. So those are the four different ways you think about strengths. Is the first is, can you use strengths to address needs? Second, can you use strengths to promote healthy development? The third is, do you need to build strengths or this person you're working with interested in building strengths? And the fourth is, make sure when you're addressing needs that you're not eliminating strengths. Hospitalization, residence treatments, treatment in other communities are the kind of things that frequently destroy the strengths. Competing with family members, I mean, all sorts of stuff in the situation. All right. A big problem in the children's system, I suspect, is also a problem in the adults. So, um, how's it interesting? Let me give you an example of using strengths to uh, promote healthy development that's different than using strengths to address needs. This is, a, again, an old adolescent young adult uh, example. This is a young lady. She was in the justice system. Uh, and she was, what had happened is that she had been a, you know, girls in justice are really different than boys in justice. Girls in justice, a lot of trauma. And women in prison are different than men in prison. And women in prison, a lot of trouble, right? So it's the same trajectory. So this uh, young lady had been sexually abused. She was a runner, which is adapted from abuse to the sexual offense that had been in the sector. She got arrested for shoplifting. She got put in a program. 
she got stressed in the program. She ran from the program that violated her probation. And he said, we, we violated her. Well, the language hide away. She don't even violate it. It's tragic that the system violates her too. But anyway, regardless. Um, she made an eligible for our program. The liaison met with her, did the hands in this case, uh, and uh, discovered that she was gifted artistically. She drew beautifully. So he's thinking strength-based. She's got this strength art. She's got this need trauma. Let's get her, get her into art therapy. Well, luckily, she's also articulate. And she said, please don't ruin my art. I love my art. I hate my trauma. I don't want to be thinking about my sexual abuse when I draw. It's where I go to be safe. Well, they listen. And instead, they got her into a graphics art program. Because if you can get a job doing something you do well and you love, that's the best, right? So that's what strength based often is. Particularly with older teenagers and with adults, is you're using a strength of emotional development that may have nothing whatsoever to do with addressing the system. Sometimes it might, but sometimes it might not. Uh, with folks with developmental needs, it's way more likely that actually using strengths to, to address needs. With people without developmental needs, it's more likely actually that you use strengths to promote healthy development and it may or may not be addressed. <coughs> Some people don't like you to mess their needs and their strengths together. Some people. All right. Spiritual witness is the single most controversial of all the different uh, strengths. I've talked to people who take their people they work with to the church with them. So there's a lot of levels of personal comfort with these issues, but what we find repeatedly is people with spiritual lose things do better. So uh, kids do better, adults do better, people in the justice system, people in substance abuse, uh, any folks that have spiritual lose beliefs tend to have better outcomes than if they don't. Now again, this is one of those strengths that you may not choose to build because it's a personal preference kind of issue. Uh, but it also may be one that you do choose to build. So that's what faith-based services sometimes are. Right? It's about building. Community connections is the single most powerful cross-sectoral tool. In every sector, in every age, people who are connected in a meaningful way, the communities in which they live, do better. So, and it's one of those things you can do something about, right? So are you connected in a meaningful way to the institutions of your community? That could be a job, it could be a church, it could be a community center, it could be uh, the people in a community. Some people are connected to the community in which they live because they've lived in the same neighborhood for years and they know everybody. That's a community connection. That's one of those connections that we sometimes destroy. That people have a meaningful connection to the physical location where they live. That's a really, really powerful connection. And in your effort to meet their needs, if you put them in a different location, you destroy that connection, you're actually making things worse because the single most powerful picture of good outcomes is being connected in a meaningful way to the place where you live, the community in which you live. My brother has schizophrenia and he has uh, never been hospitalized. He has always been employed except for a short period of time or uh, he was in the middle of his first major episode. Uh, he's always uh, always been in relationships. Uh, he's got a church he's involved with and so forth. So it's his connections with his community that actually sustain him. So when he's having his problems, the minister in his church took him under his wing. The minister actually was a fellow traveler. My, my son's language. He had his own struggles. 
and put him in, under his name and helped him through that period of time. Those kind of connections are powerful. Those are powerful, way more powerful than anything. All right. And that's what natural supports are. The community is a physical location. The natural supports are the people. So if you have people in your life, these are unpaid others. So non-family, non-paid. So the pastor and my brother's example would be a natural support. He actually got a job. His job is night shift at a hospital, a hospital hotel. So it's perfect. It's mostly run by volunteers. I don't know if you know anything about volunteers in hospitals. It's usually women over the age of 60, right? So it's, uh, so they're all his mother, right? And so he's got like six different mothers, right? Make me nuts, personally, but it's great for him, perfect for him, but he's got people who care about him and make sure that his job experience and working at night is not the social uh, demands of working during the day. So, and, and they don't want to work at night, right? So it's perfect. He's a guy who can work at night, so he's safe, and so that kind of thing. But those natural sports matter. And so uh, there are people who are paid caregivers, and are they natural sports or not? Well, if you're just a, if you're just involved in a person's life because it's your job, that's not a natural support. But I said before, this is the work of angels, right? And there are people who go way above and beyond their job, and so those folks put it back in natural sports. So there may be a paid caregiver at the moment, but so the question you have to ask yourself is: Is this somebody who would still be involved with this person? even if they weren't getting paid. So that, for instance, they're landlords that uh, take people out of their wings and kind of support them in ways that they're not support. They're being paid to provide housing, but they go way past their job in terms of helping that person uh, make it uh, in their house. That stuff is powerful. Uh, resiliency and resourcefulness probably we should order these uh, last, but the volunteering is last. So I'm going to talk about volunteering first, and then I'm going to come back to resiliency and resourcefulness. The volunteering is, again, I said before, it's about meaning, right? So you get your meaning in a job, you get your meaning in a church, you get your meaning in your relationships, your family. You can also give your meaning, get your meaning by giving back. And one of the things that's challenging for people who are recipients, people who are consumers, I don't even know, one of gotten on the consumer side of things, I don't like that work, because that's fairly negative too, right? So it's taking, 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 right? So uh, giving balances is relationship. Right? And so uh, if you want to have people establish meaning, one of the ways they can establish meaning is giving back. And so being involved, even if you can't work, you don't want to work, even if working threatens your disability payments, you can't find meaning by giving back to volunteering. And that's a powerful approach to establishing connections and establishing a sense of meaning in your life. So that's why volunteering is on here, uh, that it is a, a powerful strength. because. It, it balances things for people who have been historically recipients. Yeah. Oh well, I would probably not make that a zero, but it could, in fact, it would at least be a two, and it might be a one depending on the specific circumstances. But it's certainly there, and so it's a it's a useful thing. The question is, what happens once the court order is over? Is that a They just do it because the court order and they stop, and it ultimately is going to end up at three, right? 
but there might be a brief period of time during the court order where it's a two, and you're asking is it just going to catch or not. So. Okay, resiliency and resourcefulness are not strengths per se, they're meta strengths. So this is not um, do you have these strengths, it's how you use strengths. So these are meta strengths, this is how people use their strengths. And uh, if you've read the resiliency literature, you know it's kind of a fuzzy set, right? Have you heard people say this person has been through so much, they're resilient? Have you heard that survivor definition of resiliency? You know the, what the problem with the survivor definition of resiliency is? You don't do the assessment of dead people, right? Every single person you assess is alive. They're a survivor. And if you use a survivor definition, it puts you in this very odd position of saying, you, you suffer a lot. You're resiliency. You, you haven't suffered enough. Go suffer, and then you too can be resilient, right? And it's prescribing suffering and building resiliency, which makes no sense. So if you have to suffer to be resilient, not a good model. So there's a very formal definition of resiliency in this three-step process. Well, now that I live in Canada, I really should say a three-step process. Anyway, uh, you have to have an internal strength. You have to recognize that you have an internal strength, and you have to use that internal strength to promote healthy development. You're deeply religious. You recognize the value of your spiritual beliefs to your well-being. You use prayer or attendance to church services or meditation to deal with challenges in your life. That's resilient. You play the guitar well. You recognize that you play the guitar well. You use the fact that you play the guitar to form a band, and you have now a group of friends who get together and jam, and now you have a social connections through recognizing your talent. That's resilient. You have an internal skill, so a strength. So wherever you are, you have it. You recognize it, and you use it to promote health development. Resourcefulness is exactly the same concept. But now you're talking about external or environmental strengths. You have a family that loves you. You know that you have a family and go to your family and they'll help you out. That's resourceful. You recognize your external. It's the MacGyver strength, right? Remember that show? They can take a table and create a tactical nuclear weapon, right? So you recognize the strengths of the environment and use them. Uh, the next set of items are culture items, so language, identity, ritual, and stress. So remember I said there's three ways of culture influence the system. This is the second way. These are cultural needs. So language is easy. Uh, in most jurisdictions, it's, uh, if you speak English, then you have language accommodation, and everybody else needs help. Uh, there are some places where you have full access with Spanish. and In Ottawa, you have full access with French, because it's a bilingual environment. Uh, now, keep in mind with no help, as I mentioned before, that the emerging evidence is that mental health treatment works best in the first language. The mental health treatment isn't as effective in second languages, and that's because mental health treatment oftentimes requires access to emotional space, and your emotional states are tied to your first language on the assumption. I'm in the process of learning French. I will never swear in French. It makes no sense to me. I don't know anything about French swearing, but it's all religious icons that you're using to swear. You know, swearing in English is all about bodily functions. <laughs> right? Anyway, so it's different, right? So I would not go there in my head, right? And so because it's not tied to my emotions, right? I would tell you what they were, but I can't say it in public. <laughs> no, the, the big one, the F-bomb in French, is a slight mispronunciation of the word tabernacle. <laughs> Does that make any sense to you? 
Well, there's even slang, right? So you say something like "hamburger," and that becomes like "darn" or "gosh." That's funny. Yeah, who knows what they're reading? All right. All right. Okay. So, um, so if you've got somebody Spanish speaking and you don't, they don't currently have access to a Spanish language therapist, and you're Spanish language therapist, then that's a language issue. American Sign Language, though, for hearing impaired, that would also count. So, any sort of language validation. Identity is a person's sense of themselves. So um, you're dealing with adults, so they should have relevant form identity, but uh, particularly with older adults, but also with aging folks. You know, am I elderly or not? You know, when are you old? Right? That goes kind of. Am I a person with a disability? You know, what does that mean in terms of my identity? All those kinds of stuff. Those are identity sense of self. The culture is defined very broadly. Am I a gangster or a citizen? Right? That's an identity. <laughs> Sexuality could be an identity. Ritual is access to um, activities, traditions, ceremonies that support your cultural identity. So, um, now again, it's a little subtle, right? So, I mean, it's usually about diet and uh, celebrations and, uh, and uh, dress and music and that kind of stuff. <coughs> Having other people who share your cultural heritage with you, to be with you, those things. All that stuff, right? Could be any of those kinds of having access to that kind of stuff. It can get a little subtle. So we had a, a young man at a uh, young adult program, and he was his family by identity. He was perfectly bilingual. He wasn't in mental health treatment at the time. He just was in that program. He was coming out of child welfare, but he was in a place where nobody spoke Spanish. And as you know, you think generally in different languages. Mm -hmm. So it's an important ritual issue for him is to be, have access to other Spanish speakers so he doesn't lose his Spanish language skills. Right? That's a ritual issue. So what do you need to do to support somebody's ongoing cultural identity? And then cultural stress is, um, is there other people's reaction to your culture that's causing problems? So Racism would be the uh, classic example of cultural stress, but being discriminated against because you have major mental illness, that would be cultural stress. Or being disconnected from people for, because you don't work, that can be cultural stress. Right? You can have intergenerational cultural stress. So if you have a parent who's got children, and that could be cultural stress that comes from the difference between adult culture and, uh, and, a, and child and youth culture. Right? I actually had a personal experience with that stress. When my daughter was 19, she was uh, dating a somewhat older guy, he was 24, he wasn't working or going to school at the time, I was not pleased with the circumstances. So I did what I thought I must. As a good father, I took him out for lunch. I put a little pressure on this guy, you know, what are you going to do with your life kind of question. He looks at him and goes, well, Mr. Lyons, you got to understand, 24 is a new 18. <laughs> I go to myself, that makes my daughter the new 13. <laughs> That's called Bill Strauss, right? <laughs> All right, the next set of items are um, mental health needs. So this is a communication strategy. This is designed to be consistent with the standard form of communication around this subject in This is not diagnostic, but it's not inconsistent with diagnosis. The big challenge with DSM-4 is there's hundreds of diagnoses, right? DSM-5 are all going to have a diagnosis. Uh, DSM-6 will be doing one diagnosis. I don't know if you've heard, there's actually planning in place. They're starting the planning process for DSM-7. It's going to be the list of 20 people in North America who do not have a psychiatric disorder. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 
If you think about levels of measurement of water, you have eyedropper, teaspoon, cup, bucket barrel, pool, it's a bucket level measure. You're lumping things that are related to each other in terms of what you're going to do about them, and it may be a little heterogeneous in the bucket. So psychosis is a very broad bucket, but not real deep. I mean, it's, not, it's only 1% of the general population. Of course, it's a much higher percentage among the folks you work with, but still probably not predominant, right? Because, uh, in fact, I think there's a whole bunch of trauma responses that end up looking like major mental illness, but what they are is complicated PTSD, right? Um, anyway, so psychosis is schizophrenia, bipolar disorder with psychotic uh, features, major depression with psychotic features, psychosis not otherwise specified, a drug-induced psychosis, there's four cardinal symptoms, hallucinations, delusions, bizarre behavior, very bizarre ways of thinking. So, uh, yeah, that's it's not bizarre enough, right? So, uh, you know, really. So, a three is a dangerous level or a disabling level. So they're so out of touch with reality, they're unable to function, or command hallucinations, it hurts off others, single most dangerous uh, symptoms. You know what the clinical protocol calls for if you are ever working with somebody who's hearing command hallucinations, it hurts off others, what's the next question you're supposed to ask? <laughs> What is your voice saying about me? Right. You want to know that? <laughs> right. so, anyway, all kidding aside, that's the single most dangerous, symptom, most highly related to outcomes. It wouldn't surprise me whatsoever. We'll never end that. But it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever if that's not the driving issue in Sandy Hook and in Colorado. I mean, that's really what's going on. That's very, very hard to uh, resist an internal dialogue, right? So, Ego control. Anyway, so that's psychosis. Impulse control, the key with impulse control is uh, evidence of the loss of control of the behavior. It's not the behavior, it's the loss of control of the behavior. You put adult ADHD here, but any other kind of problem with impulse control. So losing control of your behavior. There's a couple of behaviors that sometimes get over-labeled as impulsive. No behavior is by definition impulsive. Any behavior could be impulsive. You might argue that we didn't start unlikely to ever be impulsive, but, you know, fighting isn't necessarily impulsive. So some people fight because they lose control of their anger and their behavior. Some people fight because they're bullies and that strategically they use their aggressiveness and intimidate other people. Those are two completely different things. So make sure you're looking for evidence of loss of control behavior. The other one that gets over-labeled is sexual promiscuity. Because some trauma survivors use sexual promiscuity as an affect regulation strategy. It's not impulsive at all. It's actually a way that they're managing the happen. Uh, depression is, um, you know, mostly with adults and sadness, right? With young adults, you might see irritability as a carryover because of the adolescence is more adults. So sadness, uh, a three is a disabled level. It could be dangerous if they're, if they're hopeless and quite suicidal. But as you know, people are less dangerous when they're less depressed. Really severely depressed. They're so depressed they can't really do anything, which includes self-harm, right? So, I mean, <laughs> anxiety. How many people here are parents? <laughs> I guarantee you, you did with your kids anxiety induction intervention, right? More with your firstborn than with your second, right? So your firstborn doesn't fall over. Your thirdborn eats dirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a third born. I, there's no pictorial documentation of my existence since I'm about 21. Right? <laughs> I ate dirt. So my brother, I'm not anxious, right? My brother's lots of pictures, but he's anxious, right? And there's a trade-off here, right? Why do parents do that? Why do parents generate anxiety in their children? Because anxiety is never dangerous. Anxiety
reside is the single safest possible thing you can do. The sailors who drown are not the sailors who are anxious. The sailors who drown are the sailors who are relaxed, right? Because if you're anxious, you're hanging out tight. Um, so anyway, so we do that first. Anxiety can be disabling. That's never dangerous, but it is disabling. So if you're so anxious, you can't work. If you're so anxious, you can't cross the bridge. You go to work. Right? That would be a disabling level thing. Interpersonal problems is the um, code for personality disorders, right? But, I mean, to be perfectly blunt about it. So uh, the vast majority of personality disorders are actually around significant, long-standing problems in interpersonal function. So that's why this is, this is more characterological interpersonal problems. So it's been long-standing. So borderline kinds of features, dependent, narcissistic uh, kinds of uh, features. The one exception is antisocial you do separately because you have a very different approach around antisocial behavior kinds of problems than you do with other kinds of uh, interpersonal problems. There's a number of fairly effective practices now that are emerging for addressing these kinds of long-standing uh, interpersonal challenges like we're one personality and so forth. A three again is a disabling way. <laughs> antisocial behavior, this is where you would put antisocial personality disorder. And of course, you don't refer them to the milieu treatment, right? You don't want somebody with antisocial personality in your day treatment center, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a good plan. You can, have, you can have a group of them all together, right? That's okay, but you don't actually mix. So I guarantee you don't have problems. Right? Okay. Now, this is about the what, not about the why. So there's a couple items that do have some why. The first one is adjustment of trauma. And this is where PTSD is. So, and you can't actually assess adjustment to trauma unless you make a cause and effect assumption. So there's some, by definition, some why here. So you're saying <coughs> trauma occurred, it's leading to the current adjustment. So the, the adjustment is in the last 30 days, but the trauma could have been any time that person's life. And I do think, actually I'm quite confident, that there's an enormous amount of undetected, unaddressed trauma in the adult mental health. We've been doing some work in our ACT teams in, in uh, Ottawa, and almost every case when you start digging through it has significant trauma. And you start looking at their symptoms, and their symptoms are actually like complex PTSD, way more than they're like schizophrenia. But their medication profile is way more like schizophrenia, and it's probably not going to be the damn bit of good. So, uh, except that it might be this is an important one. I think it's a really unrecognized and unaddressed one of the adults. This is my turn. Maybe different here. So uh, now, as you probably know, there's a lot of controversy in the traumatology literature uh, about what constitutes a trauma. So uh, there's some folks who say the very process of being forced out the birth canal is a trauma, right? So that's a bit, a bit of a problem because that means anybody that's born is a trauma, right? So. Uh, and there's other folks, so the War Veterans Coalition, that says unless you're in combat, you don't have a trauma, right? So we try and stay out of all controversies with approaches that tend to be a common language. So the definition of trauma here that we're using is bad things happening, right? So bad things happen that lead to a current adjustment of that would be rating here. Now, to be a three, to be PTSD, there's a pretty limited number of things that are associated with that disabling or dangerous level of trauma. And that would be sexual abuse, physical abuse, extreme neglect, being in combat, war, terrorism, effective, being in a natural disaster, witnessing violence either at home or in the community or school. Those are things that can be related to a free life. 
which is why this controversy. Uh, anger control with, with children, you call it tantrum. With adults, you call it intermittent explosive disorder, right? So, um, but it's pretty much the same phenomenon, right? So it's losing control of your anger. Now, it's not really, I, control is probably the wrong word here, right? Because you can have situations where you have anger control issues, but it's not impulsive. You're not in control of your behavior. You're actually completely in control of your behavior. So you can actually have a three on anger control and a zero on impulse control. And that's the person who uses their anger to bully others. There are people, there are people, for instance, actually the, uh, one of the engines of domestic violence is you have somebody with a free on interpersonal because they have a, a narcissistic sort of features in their relationship. They're a three on anger control because they're in a relationship with somebody who actually be a two or a three on interpersonal because of dependent personality and features. So they get in that relationship and they start escalating the violence or the threat of violence to control the other person as the other person tries to separate because they get sick and tired of the over-dominance of that particular unhealthy mix, right? And so, so that's a three on interpersonal or three on anger control, but it's not an impulse control problem. People with narcissism get angry and manipulate others. That's not an impulse control problem. That's completely control of their behavior. They're using their anger for secondary gain. And if you're trying to figure that out, the key piece of evidence is around the cool-down phase. People who use their anger manipulatively, as soon as they get what they want, their anger goes away, it doesn't matter there. People really have affective regulation kinds of problems, uh, and impulse control problems, sometimes their cool-down takes hours you know, before they come back. That's what you're looking at. Through the differential. Uh, substance use, uh, zero is no use, one is used, two is abuse, three is dependence, daily use, tolerance is all. Now, the zero, one is a debatable thing, you know, what's uh, enough use to capture, keep an eye on it, so uh, that's going to be individualized, right? <coughs> you also use a one for somebody in recovery, so that they have a history, but now that's not. Chances are anybody in recovery is always going to be a one, so unless that, unless their only period of substance use was in university, right? Because there is some evidence that there's that one period of time, it's sort of like heroin abuse for Vietnam veterans, but there is some evidence that guys became heroin addicted in Vietnam is the minute they stepped off the, the boat that it went away, right? So those kinds of things you can retire, right, as, as meaningful history, but almost every other circumstance, if you've ever had a substance addiction, you're always going to be keeping an eye on it here. Because most recovery models in some talk about that, but you're never free of it, you always have to be aware. That's not true of binge drinking in college, right? That's not true sometimes of substance abuse in war zones. And then eating disturbance, this is where anorexia and bulimia would be rated. So, so would any other uh, eating problem, overeating, obesity, food sensitivity, the food refusal, uh, all that stuff. Uh, would be eating, uh, food hoarding, um, pica. Well, people accuse me of having pica. I don't have pica. I just, I just like sources product. Right? So, pica is the eating of material that has no nutritional value. Like, oh, right, yeah, okay. Anyway, so eating It's highly, highly related to all If you have somebody who eats their own feces, eating disturbance, right? So there's all sorts of things that can manifest themselves. All right. Um, can I go back just for a second? Sure. Um, the rating, does it have to be, um, 
Oh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm keen on that. Most versions don't, I don't probably, I might suggest you cross that out. I mean, it's, it's sort of always true, but it's always, it's sort of unnecessary language. Right. I mean, and let, this particular version, the way it's written, is to be used in the mental health system. For folks who are using a cross-system version of this, also in substance, they use a substance module so there's more information around it. And so that's why it's written that way. For this version, it's designed for people who are the primary treatment is mental health. And so the question is, what's the implication of substance for the mental health? But I'm not so sure it's necessary. I think it's not as useful to just say, let's throw substance regardless. But it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine a circumstance where somebody's in mental health treatment has a serious mental illness in a substance use, and the substance doesn't have a relationship with a mental health hard to imagine. Probably unnecessary. Thanks. All right. The uh, next set of items on the risk behaviors. So that is, oh, can we take a break for a while? I'm not even paying attention to the time, so I didn't turn off that. So, uh, okay. So, um, it is uh, half, it's 22 after, so that means we should reconvene in an hour, which is 22 after 1. Right. I know that's not going to be real. <laughs> Let's shoot for that, because if we get back on that time, then uh, we can get you out of here in a timely fashion. Um, okay. I'm sorry? Uh, before you rush out, oh, yeah, I'm not sorry. Right. No, you can't say 1.30. I'll say 1.22, and I'm